0: Hey world and welcome back to the shape of a star podcast where everyone has a story we just need to shape it so like where the star or something like that along those lines I feel like I say that different every time but you get the point the words are the same except for the word like might be thrown in but whatever you get to see it every time you check out our Instagram at the shape of a star podcast uh, we have an email. The shape of a star podcast at gmail.com and at the shape of a star on Twitter because podcasts couldn't fit in the name for some reason you could get like podcast you can fit the st but we're not here about that today. We're here once again to have an awesome conversation with self-made self-published author who also has like a lot of cool things happening behind the scenes that no one knows about until now so please welcome everyone author Christopher Russell.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on. Nope, Good to problem. be here. Yes, you have a mess. Ignore my mess as well.
2: <laughs>
1: there are books everywhere. That's what you expect from an author. Books over here, books behind me, books all over the place. Also, <laughs> lots of games on my middle shelf because I'm one of those crazy people that uses shelves of a bookshelf for games.
0: Is that crazy? Or is that like the only way? I hear works? that it's
1: supposed to be sacrilege, depending on how much of a book purist you are.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> whoops yep
0: uh, <laughs> but so chris over here tell the world how we met
1: so we met at a book convention Galaxycon richmond i think it was this past march um this is being recorded in september of 2022 so march of 2022
0: today is march yes. september 29th and, Everyone and i was selling
1: books for my divinity's twilight series so book for book one divinity's twilight rebirth it's an epic fantasy with a lot of steampunk elements People like to call it a cross between Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, but I was selling books with my good friend, John Kong, who has also been on this show, and Danny came over and we talked about books and he bought a book and he, I don't know if he's read it yet. He's a very busy guy, but he will read it eventually. Yes, I will. (laughs) But no, we had an awesome conversation. He invited me on the show and I'm happy to talk to you guys about my books and anything else Danny drags from my mind.
0: (laughs) That's funny you say that. People know (laughs) that's what I do all day. Is draw people's thoughts out of their minds and emotions.
1: Yes, but you're a good counselor.
0: Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, straight up people. I was at GalaxyCon Con because ugh, I was there to meet one of the Alan Richmond, mm-hmm. uh, who was an actor because everyone knows him from like this new show. I forget what it is, Reaper or something. And I was like, um, no, this guy's from Blue Mountain State. <laughs> he played like hot quarterback for the college. I'm gonna go meet him and as i was walking by i saw your booth and i was like oh god i had no idea john was gonna be here and then john I was probably
1: like, i don't know whether you talked to john first or not but i maybe yelled at you like hey do you read fantasy and sci-fi books like i yelled at everybody that walks past
0: actually yes. i yelled at you first oh okay <laughs> only because i was like john's here reversing the script it's mm-hmm. what we do all the time mm-hmm. but yeah uh, no, I literally was like, John's here? And they were like, yeah, he just went on a break. But do you, And then you were like, but do you read? And I was like, yeah, I do. Quick segue. Make the sell. Yes. We respect the hustle. So, you're here as one of the many authors I like to talk to, which <laughs> we counted before we started, everyone. It's only five other authors. I thought I had more people on. <laughs> I'm not as well in the red as I think I am sometimes. It's a
1: small little fishbowl.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... What makes you, like, what I thought was the most unique by far, is that you're the first self-published author. People, I forgot John came on the show because he's episode three. We're in the 50s for the episodes in recording now. And that's not including the Hot Topics episode because that pushes it to the 70s. So go with it. So. What are numbers? Not my game. That's your game, actually. But we'll get there. Yep. Uh, (laughs) So for those who don't know, what does self-publishing mean compared to traditional?
1: So self-publishing means that you have, well, let's talk about traditional first. That's the best way to phrase this. And I actually started as what's called a hybrid or sort of trad author. So we'll talk about that as well. So traditional publishing is that there are currently five big publishers, um, Penguin Random House, Simon Schuster, Macmillan, and two others I'm forgetting off the top of my head. There used to be six, but it went down um, a decade or two to five. And they control most of the, the big authors, your big New York Times bestsellers, all those different things. And the way that you go and apply to them is you typically get an agent first. Um, they're sort of the people that are the calling cards because they know everybody in New York where publishing based, And they have inns. They're able to go to dinner with these people. They they have connections. And you, little author that wants to put your book out, don't have connections. And that's why you go to them first. And they go through what's called a slush pile. And they find what they think are the best books that people send them. And then they ask those authors for their full manuscripts. They review them. And they send it off to the publishers, and then it goes to an editor, and you keep getting screened repeatedly. I'm going to cut out steps for the sake of streamlining this. But that's essentially traditional publishing. And then you go through maybe two to three years of work with the publisher, and then your book hits shelves. Maybe it does well. Maybe it's in the front of Barnes & Noble. Maybe they didn't put a lot of money or marketing behind it, and it just goes straight to the genre shelf at the back. Who, who knows? There, there's a lot of stuff we could talk about and unpackage there. Uh, then you have self-publishing, which is the op- opposite. A self-published author goes out and sources everything themselves. That's the one thing you get with Trad, is that they source. They typically source your editor. They'll source your cover artist. They'll source an interior artist, if you're lucky enough to have interior illustrations. Um, they'll source the guy that does the formatting for the inside and the outside of the book. Every Once you hand them the manuscript, your job is done except for an, an advisorial role, for better or worse, in Trad. Um, I know authors that hand their manuscript off and they have no say in what goes on their cover, what goes on the blurb in the back. Literally, the only thing they contributed was what's in between the front and back cover. Self-published, you get to make all the decisions yourself. But along with that, you also have to bear all the costs unless you do a Kickstarter or something like that. There's a bunch of different avenues that you can go for funding these things. But you also reap all the rewards because you are both author and publisher. And so you get final creative uh, liberty. So with this here, this is book one of mine, *Divine's Twilight Rebirth. It was published by Morgan James Publishing in 2020 during the pandemic. Um, did very well, won a couple of awards. Uh, one in 2020, the Osmo Award for Best uh, Fantasy. And 2021, the American Fiction Award for Best Epic Fantasy. Uh, and this cover, I actually, the reason I call it a hybrid is that I went and sourced it myself. This is Chris McGrath. Who does the cover art for Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn series? If you know him, um, he's probably the second most famous fantasy author after George R. R. Martin. He also recently broke the all time Kickstarter record with a $42 million Kickstarter for his four secret novels. So, big guy, even if you guys haven't heard of him. Um, but so, people really like the cover, really like the book, but that was hybrid. So, I do, uh, the money does not come directly to me, it goes to Morgan James Publishing, and then they pay me royalties. That's the other thing that um, if you're whether you're self-published or traditional, you'll be getting royalties. Um, if you're self-published, you'll be getting them from Amazon or some sort of other book publishing service like Draft2Digital is another one. But if you're tra- if you're a traditional or hybrid, you get it directly from your publishing company. Then because I wanted to include more interior illustrations, I wanted to decide how long the book was and I wanted to give myself room to breathe and to tell my own story. I decided to self-publish book two, which is Divinity's Twilight Remnant. And so what I have done is that I have created my own publishing company called Illyrium Publishing with a crystal as the thing. And you can actually see book two in there. And that'll look really cool on shelves once I get book one reprinted because they'll have the one, the two, three, et cetera. But no, it's a very high quality book. Still comes from uh, Ingram, Publ- uh, Ingram Printing they're the people that do all the printing and so like for example this is the world map you can still do extremely professional books on your own you just have to know who to go and source so chris McGrath still did the cover the famous cover artist that did sanderson's book and and jim butchers um bunch of different authors gave me quotes and my fan base followed me over sales have been great so far uh it came out September 14th. It hit number one in military fantasy on Amazon. And it was uh n- number one new release and number one bestseller. So great launch of it. Um, very excited about that. Those are spots normally held by people like Brandon Sanderson, who I normally mention. So the book's done very well. People like the series and uh All the reviews have been great so far. I think on Goodreads, it's sitting at a 4.94 out of five. So I, I think it's the best book I've ever written. And my editor thought so too. And I'm just really pleased that everybody else does because you, as an author, you go through a lot of your time thinking, am I a hack? Is my next book going to be as good as the last one and things like that. But anyway, so that's a big breakdown. Traditional, you hand the manuscript off. You go through a lengthy process of finding an agent, getting through editing getting it to an editor, getting it on shelves, self-publishing a lot faster, but you have to put in a lot more work. It is a second job. Being an author in and of itself is a job be doing all the marketing, advertising, everything that you have to do on your own for self-publishing is a, a second job at that point or a third job. If you have a day job like Danny and I do.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. But anyway, um, there was one more thing I wanted to touch on there. Um, Oh, self-publishing. I talked about marketing and advertising. If you are a traditionally published author, there is no guarantee that your publisher will do anything to help you aside from put the book out, that they put a lot of their effort and their money into their best sellers and, and people that they think are going to be their best sellers. If you are what they term as a midlister, you will likely be doing all the marketing work and job yourself still, which is why the midlist, as we call it, is rapidly being gobbled up by self-publishing. Especially in the wake of people like Brandon Sanderson, he did that Kickstarter to self-publish those four books, even though he's keeping most of his books traditional. So $42 million. So it's a great time to get into the market if you want to do self-published. Because um, 10, 15 years ago, there was a big stigma around it that self-published books weren't as good, that they they couldn't win awards, that they, they couldn't um, – it, to compete with traditionally published books that's pretty much gone away that the playing field has been even
0: I'd argue even 5 years ago uh-huh <laughs> yeah uh, no I didn't know that he went self publishing rude
1: oh, so no he Lord. is still traditionally publishing all his main titles so there's a video that um all your listeners and you can go out and find it's actually hilarious And it is him talking about, well, guys, I have something to confess. And he's sitting at his desk like he's going to give this formal apology. And people are thinking, oh, no, he's delayed his other books that the pandemic's gotten to him. No, he dealt with the pandemic way differently than everybody else. He wrote four books extra on top of everything else he was supposed to do just for fun. And he decided to to publish those on his own. Yeah.
0: Ugh, oh, if only we were all that productive. Yes. Mm-hmm. I had a wonderful quarantine. I've said that and I don't regret it. But mm-hmm. still, it would be nice. So I actually have a question for you now, too. So you created your own publishing company. Yes. Mm-hmm. You said, okay, so if someone wanted to like pitch to you under your publishing company, is that something that could actually
1: happen? It could happen. Most self-publishers, what they do is they they create an LLC, and the primary purpose of it is for ta- for taxes, that you are creating something because you are spending money. You're putting money back into the economy. Well, if you have a, a day job, if you have anything else where you make money, you want your losses to be counted against it, Anyth- anything that you put in. So... And also, when you do make money, when you do make profits, it's better to make it as an LLC than it is as an individual. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, so we talked about traditional. We talked about them getting it into brick-and-mortar stores. By brick-and-mortar, I mean retailers like Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Book Warehouse, any of those that you think about that you could go to either a standalone store or that will be in an outlet mall or something and so they when they go to buy books they're looking at catalogs that publishers put out and so originally uh actually the funny story here two years ago barnes and noble had what was called genre buyers and they were people at the corporate level that went out and scanned the sci-fi fantasy lists, or whatever genre they were responsible for and said i think these books will do well We are going to buy this many copies of the book, put them in our warehouses, and then distribute them to the individual stores. Pandemic hits. Barnes & Noble has to close like so many other places, and they decide we don't really need genre buyers, that that is an extra expense. They get rid of their genre buyers and turn that responsibility back over to the individual store managers. So now if you have Cheryl or whatever manager name at local Barnes and Noble, I I think I know a Cheryl manager at a local Barnes and Noble, which is why that was my go-to. But if you know a person at a local Barnes and Noble, you go to them as a self-published author and say, I have these really good books. Uh, I've sold with you before. We've done signings or things. Please stock it. And they'll go okay i know that i can sell this in my store i will stock it and they may even put it out in the front with on their their tables that are normally reserved for paid customers because they know your books sell and so self-published authors have a greater opportunity than ever before if they have a professional professional product that looks like a traditionally published book that barnes and noble managers would be proud to put on their shelves they have a better opportunity than ever before to sell their books in brick and mortar stores, provided that they have paperbacks published through Ingram, Ingram Spark. You have to have it published through there and not just through Amazon. Amazon allows you to buy author copies, paperbacks, hardbacks, whatever, to do signings at like conventions where we met Danny uh, and other bookstores like uh, maybe a Second and Charles. Second and Charles is a chain that does secondhand books. And so you can go in there and do a split with them for using the space, but big retailers like Barnes and Noble will only buy your books from Ingram. So if you're a self-published author, make sure you publish with both Amazon and Ingram Spark if you're doing physical copies and not just eBooks.
0: Wow, you when you told me that day, because I tried to like pitch you back in March, everyone to get yep. you on the show, that you really knew the business side of self-publishing and you love talking <laughs> about it. Holy cow, I didn't know about Ingram and all Uh that.
1: And I So Ingram is the big printer. They have two different sides. There is Ingram regular, which is where all the trad, hybrid, whatever people buy from. And then Ingram spark. It tends to be a little slower. Um, If you do paperbacks with them, they'll print in five days and then ship. So maybe you're looking at 10 days to get them delivered to you. If you do hardbacks, they're going to be 10 days. So for example, this is the paperback that I was showing you. I'm doing a signed and numbered hardback run of this with a cool dust jacket that's going to be around. And those are going to be uh, limited special editions. And then I'll start selling normal hardbacks after that. And then I'm also working with somebody else, hopefully, to do um, this interior cover to have a full page of art at the front and a full page of art at the back, all color. Wow. Yep. So lots of fun stuff.
0: Right. Holy cow. Yes. So... Uh, yeah, no, I'm just blown away by how much I learned in like the minutes
1: you've been going on about this. So, you being a counselor, and I'm sure you've done this with your own show, that you could probably talk for hours about how to work with children that have difficulties or to help them reacclimate after a bad home situation or or various things that you've dealt with. And so, it's the same thing the longer, like me with engineering, the longer you're inundated with a business, uh, publishing, inundating, uh, Publishing, engineering, uh, counseling, you just memorize it all. And I remember maybe a six months after I started writing, um, that my publisher at the time, Morgan James Publishing, called me up. And they said, we have this new author that's looking at using us. Um, their fiction, their fantasy, why don't you talk to them? And that was the first talking to them without notes for like 30 minutes. That was the first time I realized that I had started to absorb everything about this, about this business, and just to be able to talk about it. And then on the writing side, I, I could do the same thing, talking about plot structures and character and everything. It, it's just fun. It's just what you do.
0: Yeah, no, I've been around the writing world as well forever, and no, I just haven't been on the self-publishing side, despite mm-hmm. the fact I know a couple people. But yeah, no, all the things about traditional publishing I knew – which, by the way, everyone, commercial time, I guess. Uh, so <laughs> if you want to know more about traditional publishing, go listen to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, which is a podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. Author Sarah Nicholas, go watch their episode, episode six, interviews authors of all genres about how they got started writing, getting their book deal, and experiences with publication. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, find it on YouTube, or go to sarahnicholas.com. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H to learn more. Mm. So that's how I know all that stuff. Yep. Because, well, one, I just have a lot of friends that went or are attempting to get traditional. Uh And just because I listen, I support my friends. So, no, super interesting to hear like the
1: whole self side. Have you been reading for them? Are you uh, an alpha reader? Some. Mm -hmm. That's Uh, being a good friend when you alpha read.
0: Yeah, my friends know it has to be fantasy, otherwise uh-huh. I'm no help. <laughs> yep. Although now I'm reading genre, like, I'm reading gay romance lately, and I was like, wow, this is a blast.
1: Well, you can also find that in fantasy. That That's probably the coolest thing about self-publishing, and I was going to mention this even if you hadn't brought up those books that you're reading, um, is that you can, there's a lot more diversity, a lot more variety in self-published. Because traditional, we're getting there. Like um, Tamson Muir, have you heard of her? Yeah. The, um, the Knife series, Known of the Knife, Hero of the Knife, et cetera. People describe it as lesbian necromancers in space, which is cutting edge. that Fantasy and sci-fi haven't done something like that before. But that's sort of an anomaly in traditional publishing. Whereas if you go over to self published you'll probably find 10, 20, 50 series like that. And a fair number of them will be of really good quality. And so you are going to find a lot more people pushing boundaries in self-published than elsewhere. Like mine, um, like I've said several times, I'm an engineer. So what I did is I took tech and magic and combined them into a world where the magic system is based around tech. People have their own original magic as well, but that uh, this has become the norm is that uh, everybody uses this mag tech. And it's based on the energy that they gather from crystals and essentially their tech level has advanced very quickly from medieval to industrial to it's very much like a World War One, World War II era world, which is something else you don't see a lot in fantasy, where you're you're blending genres and time periods.
0: Anachromaticism.
1: Yep. I think that's how you say it. Mm-hmm.
0: One of my favorite Oh, you're words. thinking
1: about anachronisms? Whatever, yeah. <laughs> where where something's out of place? <laughs> yeah. Yep. I like the way you said it though. That was really cool. Thank we'll, you. We'll make it a new word. Well, Dr. Seuss Sea World. Yes.
0: <laughs> History in the making here. But... If you
1: can remember what you just said. No, because that's how I say <laughs> yeah. it every time. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> because I have no clue how to say however you said it.
1: Anachronism.
0: Anachromaticism. So. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so what actually motivated you to tackle the publishing yourself?
1: So... When I started, I started looking for a publisher in 2019, and that's when I found Morgan James. And I have been – I originally thought that traditional publishing was the only way to go, that I might have heard about self-publishing at that point, but I had never read a self-published book. I had never gone and looked at self-published books. The, The only place I got books from was a Barnes & Noble and of course, I have since uh, done everything. I've read tons of indie books. I've read, uh, I bought books from all over the place, from conventions, from book signings, from online. I've read ebooks, I've read audiobooks. I, I used to never think I was going to do anything but a print book. But that is all a way to preface that I didn't know what the wider world was or what the options are. And I encourage any um, potential authors, any people that dream of being authors, to explore all the avenues. Um, Like I talked about before, that it is a very long and arduous road to be traditionally published. And sometimes it's worth it, and sometimes it isn't. It depends on how well your book takes off. If you are the next George R. R. Martin or the next Brandon Sanderson, traditional publishing is definitely the way to go because more people will see your book. And because everybody loves it, that you will make more royalties. You will make more money that way. If you think that you are going to sell tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands, but no more than that, you might consider self-pub because you're going to make a much higher percentage. Um, I know people that deal in that range and that they make multiple six figures a year, that they they sell hundreds of thousands of books a year and they make hundreds of thousands. So you can have lots of success as a self-published author. But um, I, was, I was satisfied with my original publisher. I was satisfied with getting into uh, Barnes and Nobles across America and uh, being able to see my book on shelves. And it was really cool. But like I said, that if you are not what they expect to be the next big thing, Um, like I said, my first book won two awards. It's gotten lots of rave reviews. Lots of authors and library journal and various publications have said it's a great book. But if the publisher does not believe in the book or that their model is not conducive to supporting the book, maybe they have a model where they do too many books for what their staff is capable of and they can't put resources behind you, then you are not going to get a lot of marketing and advertising. And if you're already doing that yourself, why not be self-published? Why not get more reward for the work that you're putting in, especially if you can transfer your fan base over, if you've established a newsletter, if you've established your social media and all these other platforms where people follow you. So to me, it was just a natural extension that if I'm doing 90% of the work, that I might as well be self-published at that point. That the only thing they were doing was packaging the book together and this isn't to disparage them i don't they were great there are many nice people at morgan james publishing that i enjoy and i appreciate but that the best model for me as an author was to be self-pubbed at this point um, if there is a tor orbit galanx some of the, someone that's an imprint of the big five comes along and says hey we really like that that your book's doing really well i might consider going back to being traditional again but self-published has been very good to me so far.
0: And we hope it continues, because honestly, this is a fascinating career story. Yes. There and back
1: again, a self-published author's story. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, you, already getting your, like, yep. TED Talk. I don't know if it's a TED Talk. Well, it could be a TED Talk. I'm I getting guess. my
1: Bilbo on. Yeah. Yep. Mm.
0: Uh, but, okay, so... People are going to ask this because, like you said, it's like you got to have your fan base. I know Jenna Moresi is like one of the biggest like people that are known for self publishing because mm-hmm. she has her YouTube channel.
1: Or like uh, Will White, Unsold, uh, the Cradle series. Have you heard of that? I'm the worst these days. At... Oh, you're fine.
0: <laughs> no, uh, He more. is
1: progression fantasy. Mm-hmm. And he's how prob- Um. Oh, I was like, how do you define progression fantasy? So progression fantasy, um, okay, so you have traditional fantasy, which is like elves, dwarves. It's the things that were popularized by Tolkien. We would call that like classical fantasy or high fantasy. Um, Then you have epic, which is what I write, and there's various types of epic. Like I call mine steampunk epic because it has airships, it has... Uh, cool tech, things like that that are combined with the magic. There's different genres to epic. And that's typically dealing with the fate of the world, with armies and nations and politics. Um, Progression fantasy, we start to get a little smaller scale. And I would say it's a subdivision of what we call sword and sorcery. Sword and sorcery is like D&D, Dungeons and Dragons, that you get a crew together, um, a party, and they go on an adventure to defeat an evil wizard, to retrieve a relic. Or some other variation on that. And so there's going to be battles with magics and weapons. And uh, maybe there's a chosen one or something like that. Various tropes. Um, Progression fantasy starts to bring in elements of like video games and things like that. That this is a world where people have levels. That they um, gain skills and abilities and power-ups. Whether they are actually in a game. Or they've been transported into a game or it's just a world that functions on game principles that is um, another world different from earth. And so there's various things I would say, I'd say progression is like a subset of lit RPG, but don't shoot me. If somebody's a progression author and I get that wrong.
0: No, because I was about to say, hold up. I literally just got a book this week called Mm. Kairos, the last gods, a Greek Uh myth and pirate lit RPG. Uh And I was like, it sounds just like what you're describing.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I think, uh, Wuja might be another subdivision of that, like uh, Asian progression fantasy. Um, the Cradle series that I talked about—that is uh, Wuja. It's uh, probably the most famous indie or self-pub um, progression fantasy. But yeah, it's just about in normal fantasy, main characters learn from mentors. They learn skills like new magic spells, or they get better and stronger and build their muscles. In progression fantasy, you train. And then you get a new ability that is, like, in your menu if you were playing a game. Or that you get more mana. That There's something quantifiable. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, So, oh wait, totally (laughs) deviated from the original question. Okay, but how do you specifically market yourself as a self-published work? Because, again, you're having so much success, people are going to want to know. You don't have to reveal all your secrets,
1: but... (laughs) So what you mean, how I do my marketing or what I market my books as? Do. Okay, so what I do. So there are a bunch of different sources for indie marketing. Um, The first things that you're going to come across if you're publishing through Amazon, they're the biggest, is Amazon ads. And I don't necessarily recommend doing Amazon ads until you are reasonably established, until you have, Um, A bunch of reviews on your book, um, I'd say 50 to 100 at least, because that's when Amazon will start pushing your book on their own with their algorithms. Um, And Amazon ads can get very expensive very quickly. And so I only have a few books out. I know people that have dozens of books out in their series or that they've written uh, dozens of books across multiple series. And that's what we call a backlist. A backlist is the best thing that an author can have. Because if they put out that Amazon ad for one book at the start of a series and the reader likes that, they are likely to read through the rest of the series, buy the rest of the series on their own, organically. So that Amazon ad, whatever you paid for it, has now turned into multiple book sales. So you typically until you start, until you have multiple books, you really don't want to dive into Amazon ads because like I said, they get very expensive very quickly. Facebook ads instagram ads various other things um again you're noticing i'm saying ads um you can get organic traction on social media um facebook instagram twitter TikTok is probably the biggest right now um it's what we call book talk they they have added book to the t- in place of the tick because it's that big of a thing on TikTok. and i know people um i don't forget her last name but um a friend of mine of perna uh, the Boy Who Caught Fire, I think was her work, but she became a TikTok megastar with her uh, book-related uh, videos, and she is now getting a deal from a traditional publisher. So if you can uh, write one, write a good book, uh, get it a good editor, um, get beta readers, people that are not your parents, that are not your friends, that will critique your book and give you – I know we're going down a different rabbit hole, but this is important to – Marketing is having a good product first, and it's not to say that what you've written is, you've written is bad, but you need to workshop it. Other people, multiple other people that don't care about well, maybe that they care about you, but they will give you tough love and they will tell you what they think is wrong, they need to look at the book first, the before it ever hits shelf before it ever gets to actual reviewers. And so that's the start. Fix your novel after whatever they say. Be open to taking criticism. Have an editor that will do the same thing. An editor's job is not to pat you on the head and tell you that you are the best author in the world, that this is the best thing that they've ever seen. Their job is because they are working for New York Times bestsellers. They are working for various people in the industry. They know what works. They know what doesn't. Their job is to take your book and make it into the best that it can possibly be. Not to change your story, but to make it the best story that you've told and to make your story the best it can possibly be. Have to reorder things sometimes. Anyway, so that brings us back to marketing. So once you've done all that, then you can put out stuff about your book. Um, graphics are great. Um, I use something called Canva. Canva is a program that you can build um, by either taking like uh, book mockups. Like um, the, you putting your cover on a paperback or a hardcover that's at an angle, and you can put that in there. You can do a lot of cool things with the text. You can make things glow. You can make them stand out. But you'd use that to market sales of your book. Um, like if you're going, so most indie books are priced somewhere in the range of ninety-nine cents to four ninety-nine, five ninety-nine on ebook, and that's what you're going to sell the most of. That an audio book. And so you do sales down to ninety nine cents, and then they suddenly sell like hotcakes because everybody's looking for a good deal, like anything else. So you market that on Facebook. Um, Maybe you start a reader group for people to go and talk about your book. To um, you want people to be bouncing ideas off of each other, to be crafting theories. Uh, You want things to grow organically where you don't even have to touch them. And so another thing you do in that regard is that you find people that just love fantasy, like Danny or other people that that read a lot and um i said fancy but any genre whatever you write it you find people that love these books and that are willing to promote your book to um write a review to tell their audience about it for just you giving them an ebook or you sending them a physical copy to take neat pictures with and so what we call those are books for instagram uh there's uh I don't know if book Twitter is a thing. I think they just call it that. I don't think it has a cool name. But then there's book tubers on YouTube that talk about books and make videos. And they'll do my favorite books I read this year or my top 10 books of all time. Or they'll do uh, various book reviews or hashtag chosen one or a hashtag uh, secret princess or something like that. They'll do videos related to books that they like on those. And that's some of the best marketing you can do because they'll make 10 minute videos. And if they liked your book, that'll be one of the ones that they promote to their audience. So again, this is something you you give away an ebook, you give away a physical book. So you give away an ebook that once you have that produced, once you've done all the formatting, that doesn't cost you anything. If you send them a print book, it costs the cost of printing and shipping it to you, so maybe $15, $16. But you're looking at what that money is going to do for you above and beyond. Um, I talked about ads for Facebook, Instagram, etc. Those are great for giveaways, for talking about, for getting your book to a wider audience. But I love organic marketing, the ones where you find people that love books and are going to eat it up, that are going to tell other people how much they love it. Because you posting a static ad and somebody going, oh, this is an ad from Illyrium Publishing or it's from such and such fantasy novels. They go, oh, that's a business that there, there's it's not as personal. You want sales to be as personal as possible. And that's like I go to conventions and I talk to people like I talk to Danny and we just get into a conversation like about his podcast. And that's how I'm here that. It is, it is about – everything comes back to love, whether it's love of fantasy or love of conversation or the marketing or uh, whatever topic it is. And so if you can find people that love your book, you want to give them the resources to promote it. And so I think that's the best way you can do organic or guerrilla marketing. And then we get into um, – What was I going to say? You can pay for um, BookBub ads. That's another place you can do it. Um, BookBub has a lot of resources. And I won't go. I know we're long on this topic, so I won't go into too many more. But uh, what else is there? There are newsletters. So you can build your own newsletter. Um, I have several thousand people that subscribe to mine, and I send them out news and updates and other authors whose books I've read and I enjoyed, or other authors who are having sales, and I want my readers to take advantage of that because it's about adding value. Um, But you can get in these huge newsletters that are run by um, different companies. Like there's one called the Fussy Librarian. There's another one called, um, I think it's something like uh, Book Viking or uh, what's the one? Free Booksy, Mini Booksy. Uh, There's a bunch of different ones. There's six that I really rely on and I could probably post those somewhere for you guys to take a look at but these are ones that will send it out to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. And if you have a sale, your 99 cents, or even if you give a book away for free, you want to be using these because you will have thousands of downloads in a day or multiple days, um, provided that you have a good blurb, a good cover that attract people in. Because these are people that are always looking for their next read, but at a good price. So there are tons of resources. This is an ocean deep of everything that we can talk about.
0: Literally people. um, I say reach out to your network and find out because yeah, no, that's exactly how I got people to come on the show in the beginning.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, I got my friends to come on first just to show people that, Hey, there's a fan base and it's Mm -hmm. doable. And then now I'm getting people with a little more notoriety, (laughs) prolificism, whatever we're going to call it.
1: Infamy. Uh, We're all terrible people. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> and this is here to expose you uh no this but. is
1: actually a tabloid piece
0: <laughs> propaganda <laughs> um but yeah no so reach out to your networks tap into them because it's honestly the best thing you can do and mm-hmm. yeah although i will say Canvas is the most hard thing on earth for me to use and i don't know why because everyone else i know uses it like instantly
1: and oh i, I was i was awful at it um so go to my social media. You'll see my graphic for the most recent release. It has book one with all the awards that it won on, then book two much bigger. And it says something like, um, an epic book one deserves an even better sequel or something like that. And it talks about the sale prices. And so that is two years of Canva experience. And I still think that I may be passable. And so th- th- this is something that takes a lot of time as with any, up oh, there, he's got it. So that was the graphic for the release. And so this is something that takes time. I have a friend and a co-author, Allegra Pescatori. Her book series is The Last Gift series. Um, another steampunk sci-fantasy. Very good. Great characters. Go and check it out. After my books. No, but go and check out. I'll always promote other authors that I enjoy. But she is a graphic design and Canva whiz, and I learned a lot from her. And she also sells uh, book covers. She puts together her own composite book covers that are amazing. Um, For example, I have a little novella that takes place in my universe called Gravitas, actually free on Amazon and all other ebook platforms if you want to go and download it. Gives you a short 10,000 word look at my work. This is from a villain POV, uh, very grimdark, very like a psychological horror, a little bit different from what I normally write, but a lot of fun. but she did the cover for this and she did an amazing job just combining composites. So if you don't want big, expensive um, Chris McGrath again, fantastic job, but this is traditional level quality because he works for traditional authors. Um, He even did the Dune anniversary covers and worked on Halo Infinite. So very big, very well connected cover artists. You're getting what you pay for, but there are plenty of people that you can find that are going to give you a very good quality product for a lot less so again that that's more about the preparation for being a self-published author not the marketing side
0: yeah people never doubt the power of fiverr and independent artists
1: and actually as long as i'm pushing different things i want to talk about uh indie fancy addicts it's a facebook group seven to eight thousand readers strong i'm one of the admins there and Indie is for, stands for independent. It is any authors that do not fall under the big fives or one of their imprints. You can be with a small publisher, you can be with a small press, or you can be self-published. And we welcome all those types of people. But the point of our group is um, if you go on Facebook and you go to your normal book promotion group or something like that, it is just going to be inundated. You're going to be being smacked left and right in the face with ads of buy my book. We stop authors from doing that. It is entirely reader focused. We want people to talk about the books they love, the reviews that they've done, um, because all authors are readers. The group is mostly readers, but we probably have about 900 self-published authors in there as well. And the group is rapidly growing. Um, But we want people to talk about the things they love, not the things that they've done. There, There are opportunities for that as well, but the promotion will be organic um and for example we just got done with what was called the summer reading challenge and so from june 21st to september 21st we opened up the the group to all the 8000 some people and said read as much indie fantasy as you can for every book that you read post a review about it in our feed and on goodreads or amazon or something like that and then you will get points based on the number of pages you read in that book and at the end you we tally all the points and then people win prizes um we gave out hundreds of dollars worth of gift cards, and then every author in the... Well, most authors in the group, we give them an opportunity to donate prizes for the end of the competition. And so we will be mailing out hundreds of physical books, sending tens of thousands of ebooks to winners. This is just this real fun time where people get to do what they love and get prizes along with it. So again, that is Indie Fantasy Addicts. I-N-D-I-E Fantasy Addicts. I-F-A. Great group. If you want to find... Learn more about indie and self published fantasy, great place to start.
0: And for those who do look, it's like a phoenix coming out of a book is the
1: photo. (laughs) Because if you're like me, I'm like, what does it look like? (laughs) We we sell merchandise. You can get that on a t shirt, mug, and sweatshirt, and a bunch of other stuff.
0: Look at you. You are just all over the place.
1: Yes. (laughs) I have like four or five jobs. (laughs) I don't sleep. (laughs) Who sleeps? Lucky I'm just people. gonna become more hyper as we go through this as I get more tired.
0: That's totally <laughs> fine. Yeah. Uh but okay, so you actually mentioned a co-author and stuff, which leads greatly into the next question is how many books have you published or written? I know that's two different questions, but go with it. Oh no, you're <laughs> fine.
1: So I have written four or five. Um I I have well no, okay. I have written parts of seven. I have published three books, technically five books because there's two short story anthologies that I'm represented in, but two full length novels and a, um, a standalone novella that is in the same universe, the gravitas one that I showed you. So the two main books are in the divinity's twilight series. That's my main steampunk epic fantasy, um, follows a group of cadets that are torn from their peaceful lives when a mistake of their ancestors rears its head in the present. Um, if Danny has time, I'll give you my my full pitch for that at some point. But anyway, um, so that's what I've written. And then with my co-author, she and I are working on two books that we have. One's about half written. One's about a fifth of the way done. Both are fully plotted. Um, but the first one is a satirical fantasy. It is comedic fantasy in the style of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or any Terry Pratchett books like Guards, Guards, those ones that are funny. And so it follows a character called Luca Field Treader who finds out that he is the chosen one. And his power is that he can go back in time, but he, he can't go forward in time again. And whenever he goes back in time, he produces a copy of himself. And so that copy continues on its path forward to the present, no matter whether he jumps back or not. So by the end of the story, there are thousands of Lucas running around that he has to deal with. And some develop their own personalities and are, are distinct from what we call Luca Prime, which is the one that's still moving back. And of course, he's aging as he goes through this. So he has to deal with that, too, because he, he doesn't stay the same age, even though he's jumping back in time to save the world. And so there's a lot of hijinks. That's going to be a duology lots of fun that's just us going crazy um few touching sentimental scenes but also a spoofing on sanderson's stormlight archive a spoofing on patrick Rothfuss's name of the wind a spoofing on a bunch of different stuff just having fun paying homage uh, the other one we did is a lot more serious it is an epic fantasy with a hard magic system in the style of sanderson that revolves around bones That every bone in the body can be um, worn, embedded in the body, or various, there's various different uses of it, but they will provide the expertise of the person who the bone came from. So if they were like a great carpenter, or a, a great musician, or something along those lines, that you would be able to get their skill. And then there's also magical bones that were adopted by families that killed God. And those families have now died out and true magic is fading from the world. So it's very much a world in decay and we're doing a lot of fun stuff with that, including literally that um, there's a funeral and the prologue that is the, the, last, the last death of these lords that had magic. And all the family is gathered around waiting for the will to be read to see what they're going to get out of it as the as beetles are eating the flesh from the bones to get at the bones faster. Uh-huh. So that is that is our our great social, political, um, world commentary, um, Allegra Pescatori, that um, she is an author with disability. And so she is writing a character that really showcases. Um, she has EDS, if you've ever heard of that, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is um, essentially what contortionists have. And it can be very disruptive to the body that you can very easily dislocate things, be in constant pain and um, not be really be able to hold a normal job. Um, so again, she has great disability representation of her, in her books because of her learned experience. And so if you're looking for that in fantasy, that's something you don't see a lot in traditional publishing. So read her books, read uh, Age of Bone when we finally publish it. Probably gonna be uh, next sometime next year. But yes, yeah, so lots of fun stuff
0: so remember yes. people this is airing like sometime in july so half of next oh year yeah yeah the book. yep yep and you'll, <laughs> so you'll be able be to get
1: age of bone probably yeah <laughs> a fifth
0: over 50 percent chance
1: <laughs> and that actually leads me into another thing because our goal is to have it out by the end of may next year so when this is airing um because they in june every year there is what is called the self-published fantasy blog off it's called spfbo it was started by mark lawrence who was originally a self-published author Um, I believe he runs a group called Fantasy Faction in Britain. He's a British author, but his self-published books did really well, and he was picked up as a traditional author, and the way that he gives back is running this big competition. 300 books are entered. It's the first 300 that are submitted on June 1st or 2nd, I want to say. And they have to be self-published, which means that your royalties come directly to you, that they don't go to anyone else first. That's the metric that they use. And they go through. Um, They distribute 30 to each of 10 blogs, um, blogs that deal in fantasy. Um, And that can be blogs that are a website, a BookTube platform, an Instagram platform, various things, but they're all big blogs. And they review the books. They read them. And they uh, they start with each blog starts with thirty, and they will eliminate it down to five, five semi from their batch, then down to one, and then they will take all of the winners from the ten blogs, those ten, and they will be the finalists. And then the second half of the year will be interviewing and dealing with those finalists, and then finally working to crown a winner by the beginning of May the following year. So it's a competition that takes a whole year to go from three hundred to one. And the person that wins, and many of the finalists, often uh, they are looked on very highly by the publishing community, whether self-publishing or traditionally publishing. And the winner and finalists that people like will typically get offered big contracts from traditional authors. Mm -hmm. I mean, traditional publishers.
0: No, that is super exciting because it's Mm. like, another version of pitch wars pitch wars is yes. the one i know
1: everyone yep
0: but mm-hmm. if you yeah. haven't heard pitch wars is ending this year or last next year
1: nope yep, we'll year. do spfbo Woo! Woo! we have a substitute hey yes. let uh, me know when is, all that stuff goes they're, out <laughs> they're in their eighth or ninth year of doing it
0: mm-hmm. oh exciting stuff
1: but yes i can give you some names of people if you want to talk about that mark lawrence um His is, let me look up the series so that you know which one to look for. Um, He's the first Mark Lawrence that will come up if you type it in. But it is the Prince of Thorns and Red Sister books. Um, uh, Broken Empire trilogy. But he's a good person to talk to. There is also um, Bookborn. You might want to look up her YouTube channel. She's a great person to reach out for. She's one of the judges. Um, Before we go blog on Twitter. Um, a conglomeration of blogs um fantasy faction that i mentioned uh what is the one i'm a looking... fanfi addict um they actually have a cover quote on the back of my book too um i'm trying to think of who else but there's a lot of different people yeah yeah and those are those it. are people to have on an interview about judging like what is it to be a professional book blogger if there's such a thing Um, Well, you can be professional in anything, but these are the people at the top of their craft that read hundreds of books a year, that know what they're looking for, that they know what could be the next big thing.
0: Yeah, wow.
1: Like, um, what is it called? Um, It's on TV. The one where people go in and pitch Shark Tank. (laughs) Shark Tank for books.
0: That'd be actually a good show.
1: Mm -hmm. Except for the part where all the judges are reading and the audience just has to wait. (laughs) 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 Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you, you there is a way to do it in, in, with uh, entertainment value. Yeah.
0: People cry. That's yes. the entertainment. We're we'll just all cry.
1: Yep. So now that we've segued from the segue to the segue, where are we?
0: Uh no, you answered. Uh, but <laughs> next up is what inspires you to write?
1: uh lots of stuff. Um, I would say that if you ask any author, that there is going to be a million different experience that they have that have led to what they write and why they write um for me personally the main inspiration that i'll point to for me picking up my pin again um well keyboard because i never i don't write by hand so picking yeah. up my keyboard again um so in high school I wrote historical fiction. I wrote a book, uh, well, part of a book called First Legion. And it was a what-if scenario if Julius Caesar hadn't been assassinated by uh, the conspirators, by Brutus and the, the, the rest of the, the traitors. And so he survives. Um, there is a civil war because uh, he executes Bruce's family. And it's very much a military historical fiction, an alternate history, if you will. But that really wasn't doing it for me. I enjoyed making the characters, the plot, changing and tweaking things. But I had to use things that were in the world. Um, a gladius, a Roman sword, is a gladius that, that people expect you to use that. You have to use it. Lamellar armor, the way that their the Senate worked, their politics, their bureaucracy, their games, uh, the the festivals like uh, Saturnalia, uh, Ludus, et cetera. It all exists. It's things that you have to use. And that wasn't exciting enough for me. I wanted to create all of it. I wanted to take all of the, the history that I enjoy, all of the books that I've read, all of the movies that I've watched, and recombine them in ways that I found interesting. And so that's how I got into fantasy sci-fi. Because I could, uh, I was still creating the cool characters and the plots, but now I could do fun stuff with world building. Like if I wanted to combine a dragon and a kraken together, I could do it. This is, uh, these are all illustrations that are in book two. And so this is what a guy, Rafael Lucini in Brazil, produced from what I sent him, my imagination. So I could do cool stuff that I could take. Uh, world War One battleships and float them. like um, That's essentially my idea for airships. And so, yes, I, fantasy, sci-fi, um, having a great plot and great characters is the most important things because that is what readers will latch on to. But there is so much cool stuff that you can do that people will still be thinking about y- days, months, years later, what you did with your world. Because that is why Anybody that writes science fiction fantasy, they write it to have fun with the world, to see if we change this, what is the domino effect going to be? How is this world going to be different from our own? And how is that then going to affect society, culture, fashion, agriculture, religion, um, social norms, morality, all these things? Oh, boy, but I didn't talk about my main inspiration, did I? So, <laughs> So that is why I stopped writing historical fiction. Then I went to college. I went to college for mechanical and aerospace engineering and I still do that work. Um, there's a lot of creativity you can do with engineering um, but my most of my creativity comes out in my writing. But I read a book series in my uh, second year of university at the University of Virginia uh, called Shadows of the Act by Adrian Tchaikovsky. And he is a, um, when he was writing fantasy, he was a Tor Midlister. Tor is uh, Tom Doherty and the Associates. It's the probably the biggest fantasy sci-fi imprint and i want to say it's under Macmillan, but it, it is what we consider traditional publishing one of the big five but um he has since uh done fantastically with his um uh sci-fi books um those have gotten tons of acclaim tons of rewards and i think children of the no that's orson scott card uh children of Children of Time is his most famous book right now. It's sci-fi, so that's the one you want to go look up. But Shadows of the Apt it starts with Empire in Black and Gold, and he wrote a fascinating world where it was an industrial world um, that was magic was fading, and that creatures, um, the, the human beings were moving away from it. And there was introduction of new tech. And how is this introduction of tech changing things? Um, How is it supplanting magic? How is it replacing magic? How do they deal with people that are still attached to magic, that have traditional values? Uh, And I found all this fascinating. And I said, I want to do something very similar, but in a much more high fantasy setting, uh, much more magic present. And so um, he had his insect kind in. Which was so everybody was human, but their ancestors were insects of some sort. So the wasp kinden were able to shoot stings from their hand and then fly in a limited capacity. The beetles were sturdy and industrious. Um, the mantis were people that wielded twin blades normally, like the hooked sickles that flying mantises have, and so on and so forth. And so I said, I'm going to make seven races, they're going to be different from his, and they're going to be different from Tolkien's, because I don't want to reuse what already has. And so I came up with various ones, like, for example, um, Vel. she's one of the main eight cadets in my book, and she is what's called a sylph. And their thing is that they're able to use blood magic, and so able to move their muscles and organs around to avoid fatal wounds, or to sprout wings, like, so she has wings, and put them away. And then the back of the armor that she's wearing would be carved out to allow for that, that you have different structural design to things because of what different species are able to do. And so, again, that's some of the fascinating stuff you can do with fantasy sci-fi. And so I have an insect race. Um, I have a reptilian race called Moravi that are able to manipulate their bone structure, and they're able to shoot their bones and then replace them um, over time. And so they can actually use their bones as weapons. I have a race called Vladisvar that are very mercenary, and they're obsessed with balancing right and wrong in the world. And they will graft plates of armor and weapons onto their bodies or tattoo and scar themselves in order to tell their life story about how that they kept balance through their lifetime. And so there's lots of fun stuff that you can do. Um, and anyway, so Shadows the Apt, his world was really fascinating. That inspired me. Um, I started writing, I got a few chapters into book one rebirth, which is, uh, I keep going back and forth, which is this one, but, um, I was doing engineering at the time. And so engineering is tough. It's a lot of math. It's a lot of science. It's a lot of long hours, whether you're in school or in the workplace. And so, um, I was busy. I writing is a lot of fun. It can be de-stressing but you are still putting words on a page. You are still staring at a screen. And so if you've been staring at a screen all day and you've been doing formulas and mathematical computations and all this stuff, that writing isn't necessarily a release. It is is not a break from what you've been doing. And so I set my writing aside until about, um, I started in 2012 and I set it aside until 2016, 2017, got really serious, decided I was going to write a book, that I was going to finish this. And then I finished in 2018 and pitched it in 2019. And here we are now. So that wasn't the full question, but we we got to go through some other stuff. Tick some, Check some other blocks. Hey. Yes.
0: It's whatever your story is. That's what we're here for. I'm all for it. Plus, I like hearing about this stuff because inspiration is fascinating people. And mm-hmm. I don't know. There's an eloquent way to say this. I'm not doing it right. All right. So although it is wait hold up so you... did you go to uva for undergrad
1: yeah undergrad master's phd i i lived at uva okay i i, I bleed blue and orange
0: cool so now yes. i must ask the obligatory question we ask everyone that has been at uva on the show do you hate tech no
1: oh <laughs> but, i mean sure we'll go there too. do
0: you hate tech
1: no okay
0: yeah no. <laughs> the question was have you streaked the lawn no,
1: I didn't streak the lawn. What? Uh, I, I don't know. I I never had the opportunity, really. I also wasn't a big partier. I was I was the guy that would go to frat parties and then I would beat people at beer pong sober because I just wouldn't drink to excess, <laughs> and nobody really cared. Uh, but what, what what did I do? Um, I went to the tunnels. There's there's steam tunnels below ground. That's one of the other big things that you're supposed to check off. Um, What else did I do? Um, I can't think. The the steam tunnels and streaking the lawn are probably like the two big taboo ones that you're supposed to
0: do. I have never heard of the steam tunnels.
1: Yes, so they run all below grounds. Uh, For people that aren't from UVA, we're very pretentious, and so we call things uh, differently than every other college in the world. And so a normal college has a campus. We have grounds. Other colleges have freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors, we have first through four year, fourth years. And where that comes from is that our founder, Thomas Jefferson, a uh, former U.S. president, he believed that men could never be junior or senior to somebody when it came to the pursuit of knowledge, that they could only have a certain number of years that they'd been doing it. And so the theory was that depending on how committed you are to your craft or your learning, that a first year could have more knowledge. They they could be better at a subject than a fourth year. And so they were just designations for where you were at in your educational program. Segway to the segue of the segue. No,
0: it all, I swear, it all is going to the right place. I just never knew, like, oh, okay, the only thing I have, like, okay, I've said it before on the podcast, everyone, everyone's Mm -hmm. corrected me, but these damn honorable mud huts that were around since Thomas Jefferson or whoever it was, was around. I know I'm so sacrilegious to UVA, Mm -hmm. but no, I just don't understand. I would never be able to live in them and people Mm -hmm. think it's an honor to live there.
1: So you're talking about the places on the lawn? Yeah. Okay. Yes. The ones that don't have interior plumbing and bathrooms, you have to walk regardless of the weather to go to one of those. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I thought it was a dirt floor.
1: It is. I've been in them. They're not dirt floors. They they've since renovated them. Maybe they keep the Edgar Allan put one that they show to people coming through. They might keep it a dirt floor. Like it used to be. They they're, they're a lot nicer than they, they were before. I've seen several of them. I believe it's wood floors um, that they have a, a, very nice stove in there that um, in addition to the interior heating and everything, but they, they keep that like traditional, um, there's several professors that also live in on the lawn in the bigger units, and then the, the students are in between them. Um, but I think I want to say there's something like 50 to 100 units, and there's an application process. Uh, I never applied to do that. There's, there's also an application process to another dorm on grounds called Brown, and I consider trying to get into that one. And it, there are a lot of artistic people that do that. Um, a lot of authors and artists and musicians, because um, there we consider well, the rest of the uh, student body considered them kind of quirky. And you could tell that from their application process. The year that I was going to apply, um, I remember pulling it up. And the first question was Smurfs live in your room and they have started worshiping one object as a deity. What is it? And What is it and why?
0: A box of crayons.
1: Yep so so see the the people <laughs> that get into brown are very quick and very snappy about their these creative things. And I like I said I'm an engineer. I always I think of myself as like directed creativity. And that's why you get books instead of like crazy stuff or <laughs> or me throwing paint at a canvas which can which can be look gorgeous. There's lots of great works of art that, that that's come from that. But this is structured to me, structured creativity.
0: Yeah, there are true rules of writing, everyone. So <laughs> that is where structure comes in. Mm-hmm. But again, you created the great segue. So not only do you have a creative side, but you're also super academically accomplished. You are an engineer, which, <laughs> oh my God, is so opposite of me. So <laughs>
1: let's go into it. What are your specialties within engineering? So I am a mechanical and aerospace engineer. That was my undergrad. Uh, my... Ph.D. was in uh, biomechanical engineering. So biomechanical engineering is you you want to think about that, like looking at the body as a mechanical system that um, how can we work with bones? How can we work with muscles to improve them or how can we improve uh, vehicles or things that interact with bodies? A lot of my research was in crash testing, looking at how you could make vehicles um, from various civilian corporations or the military safer or how can you reduce the force on somebody during a crash? Um, and so my uh, thesis, my, uh, my uh, doctoral thesis was looking at uh, how could you reduce the cost of safety equipment essentially in vehicles while maintaining its efficacy and uh, also apply that to people with disabilities, physical disabilities on a broad spectrum. And so there's a lot of cool stuff that you can do that. Uh, My professor that I worked under did concussion testing for the NFL. Uh, We had a ballistics lab where we would shoot at uh, body armor um, for various different groups. I can't talk about all of it, but then we also had an aircraft test lab where we did um, crash, crash testing for the military in various different aspects. And then currently my day job is that I work for a defense contractor And we work closely with uh, special forces outfits looking on providing them new solutions for what they can do uh, with their various aircraft and repairs, um, allowing them to reconfigure stuff. Uh, Again, can't go into too many details. Hush, hush, secret, secret.
0: (laughs) I don't want to die, so you don't have to tell us. Uh...
1: (laughs) I don't know anybody in the CIA. it'll It'll be somebody I don't know that knocks on your door
0: fun fact i do know people in the cia so
1: (laughs) oh they're they're gonna come on the show there you go
0: uh i did not say that i did not need (laughs) to get killed by the government thank you uh but (laughs) no but it's just funny if the cia comes after me because of your job i might know them Mm -hmm. in fact i might be hanging out with them and then it's like boom got you Uh,
1: but i actually told danny this story earlier um one of my bosses one of the three people that founded the company was part of Blackhawk Down, the 93 Mogadishu Raid. Um, he was one of the uh, special forces operatives that flew his Blackhawk back in to save the people that went down. So that that's the kind of people I work with and for, and it, that's pretty cool on that side.
0: Yeah. History living life, which I, literally people, I thought that thing happened like over <laughs> a century ago. Turns out it was like two months before I was born
1: anything before the turn of the millennia's ancient history right
0: only in the eyes of most um
1: (laughs) i'm 30 now so i'm a fossil i tell
0: people i'm 30 because i think i am
1: (laughs) it's how your body feels right
0: it's how my mind and spirit feel Mm -hmm. i'm lucky that my knees are still working yeah but okay so what got you into engineering
1: uh so engineering um my mother was originally this is a weird segue or place to start my mother was an english teacher and so i started reading writing everything from a very early age and um again this is a little bit of inspiration the first book series that i fell in love with was the red wall series by brian Jacques. and so day shaking his head that was um anthropomorphic animals go on adventures fight against unclean vermin like rats stoats ferrets uh wild cats etc and that they uh, have a redstone abbey where they have great feasts, and it's just this really cool blend of sort of like adult themes and then childhood wonder because of the the way that he describes the forests and the mountains and the jer- tri- the adventures they go on, and then pages and pages of food porn because he, that man could write a feast. You, you you would you could be full, and he would you would read a, a feast scene, and then you would want to eat again you would take the extra calories it was that good maybe maybe i wouldn't now because it would go straight to my gut but back then when i could eat things it would make me want to eat but all of this is a segue into that i would my mom liked to say i was equally right and left brained. that i was very creative and that i was also very analytical and so um, i was the type of person that did well in all subjects that i enjoyed all subjects um, that there wasn't a part of the day that I really liked more than the other. Um, very into history and English, very into physics, chemistry, biology, and calculus and whatever other maths there were. And so the reason I went to engineering is probably the same reason that almost everybody goes into engineering. One, it looks cool, it looks fun, but that's kind of secondary to engineering stable, that you are ninety nine or 95% going to get a job that you're going to make good money. And so sad to say that uh, on the one side, I'm this really creative guy writing books because that's my passion, what I want to do. But on the other side, I enjoy it. It it lets me be creative. It lets me do very fulfilling things. But you have to make money. (laughs) And so the the goal is to eventually, that once you have a big enough backlist, once you make enough money, that publishing full-time. Mm-hmm.
0: no yeah that's why i do therapy in the day and my dance coach stuff at night mm-hmm. like i i like having insurance i'll be yep i'm a sellout i'll, I'll say it yeah um, <laughs> insurance is nice yeah mm-hmm. uh but i thought you were gonna say that the number one thing that gets people into engineering is it's money
1: <laughs> like that's, it is like that isn't that money. what i said
0: you said it's like stable and you can get a job. No, I'm thinking like true. Like people just see ka-ching, ka-ching, like,
1: and go Mm -hmm. like,
0: you said, I'd say that
1: for stability, I'd say that it has a very good range of salaries, but if you, there's a lot more risk, but if you want to make bang for your buck, like being a, um, somebody in finance, somebody that's, that understands investing. Those are the people like, um, I I know a guy that uh, is a private investor for a billionaire. And so he makes bank. Yeah. But again, there's a lot of risk in that. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: And lots of movies made about things gone wrong.
1: Yep. And then um, you were talking about other jobs. So other jobs I've worked, I've done a lot of tutoring. And then I also used to teach uh, Taekwondo. I'm a third degree black belt in Taekwondo. And so while I was in Charlottesville doing all the engineering stuff, I was also teaching Taekwondo from uh, starting like three and four year olds all the way up to adults. So more fun teaching stuff. And I also taught uh, classes for a time while I was uh, getting my PhD. Ooh, uh, engineering,
0: engineering classes? classes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow, fancy. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you did the Taekwondo, Did you do the weapons stuff, or is Taekwondo not weapons?
1: No, it depends on what discipline you're with. I was with the American Taekwondo Association. Um, This is a segue to give you context, um, or a tangent to give you context. A segue is coming back, a tangent is going to. The uh, stunt woman for Wonder Woman uh, was an ATA martial artist. So um, I think she's a fifth or sixth degree, but she's part of the same organization that I am. And so she did all the stunts for Gal Gadot, all the martial arts. But anyway, American Taekwondo Association, we practice what's called Songam Taekwondo, um, one of the various styles that came out of Korea, because Taekwondo is a Korean martial art, as opposed to karate or judo, which are Japanese martial arts. And those are typically the big three that you'll hear about. And then you'll hear about, um, what's the last one? Muay Thai, out of Thailand. Um, There's a bunch of different martial arts. but those are those are going to be your big ones, I think. Uh, taekwondo focuses wait, where was I going with this? What was the question you asked? Uh,
0: nothing. I've gotten lost down I've gotten uh, lost on
1: a tangent hole.
0: What got you into engineering, I think, is where we last were.
1: No, no, no. Then you would ask me a question about the Taekwondo. Oh weapons. Oh weapons. Weapons. Okay. So Sam Taekwondo, we teach a bunch of different weapons. So we do, um, I don't think I have any directly around me, but we do Gwando, which is essentially uh, katana, which the Koreans stole the design of from the Japanese when the Japanese invaded Korea in the late 16th century. And we'll get into Asian history later. I think you have a bullet point about that. But there's the Gwando. There are uh, Sanjbangs which are the same thing as nunchucks. And so single and double. Um, we do bongmangi, which is single and double stick. And so that is actually what Korean policemen will carry. Um, it's a, a hard stick about ye long. Um, there is song knots, which are sickles that you see. The ones that are, they're originally farming tools, but they're sickles. Um, there are bow staffs, which are like you see, um, um, I believe Buddhist monks, it's very similar to the staffs that you'll see them use in movies or different martial arts when they're practicing. Um, there is a three-section staff. Same different thing, but has rings connecting the different sections. Uh, what else do we have? There is a lot. Uh Sung Do, Chinese broadsword. Um, but the idea behind that is that it's a flexible blade. So the idea is death by a thousand cuts. Um there's just a ton, we, we practice with a ton of weapons on top of our traditional forms. And then uh difference between Taekwondo and karate, if you're wondering, um, because we had Cobra Kai. Cobra Kai was, they were doing karate. And so Taekwondo does a lot more focus on kicks than karate does. And so I would say what you saw with Cobra Kai is a lot more of a hybridization of the two. Um, karate is going to be a lot more about maintaining a stance, staying on the ground, some kicks, um, Cobra Kai did a lot of ta- very taekwondo kicks. A lot of the acrobatic stuff is going to be more taekwondo.
0: Yeah. No, I knew that yes. uh, uh-huh. about the taekwondo. I used to do Shaolin back uh-huh. in the way, way day, everyone. I was like in third grade when I stopped. So mm-hmm. I remember how to get Never out too of late thing.
2: to go back. Mm. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> I got as far as I could. Because mm-hmm. I am not a tank. Everyone speaking in like game terms, <laughs> I'm a glass cannon, and one hit, I'm out. I'm done. Uh-huh. And so I could not spar to save my life.
1: Yep. Even with all the pads on.
0: Right. So, so made... somebody
1: would kick you, and you go flying.
0: Ah, uh, yeah, fly. Uh-huh. I would just crumble. It was bad. But mm-hmm. I was also like what, third, eighth, third grade? I was like seven. Yeah, I understand. I was mm-hmm. tiny. And I was just scared to get hit, and I'm still scared to get hit, even though I'm bigger. I, d-
1: I did not start until high school, and I think that in some ways that's better for martial arts. If you, Well, there's two different schools of thought. One is you start kids young, and they gain discipline and structure and rigor as they go through. And then, so that's on the, the, um, the mentality side, the building their character, because martial arts is a lot about discipline that um, there's a lot about honor and respect um to the people that are teaching you and also to your classmates which is um, a lot a lot of great stuff to teach to young kids but there's also on the side that if you start them young their body learns the muscle memory and the moves and while they're still extremely flexible and then their body retains that muscle memory as they grow up then they're starting as an adult or as a teenager um I was very lucky that I'm extremely flexible for my size and build. So that worked out in my favor. But starting as an adult, you're a lot more motivated to do it, oftentimes because it's your choice instead of your parents or somebody else's. And so you, I was always a lot more engaged in it. That, um, that, and that's why I eventually ended up teaching it, because I just loved martial arts like I loved engineering and writing and everything else. There, there's a lot of things that I enjoy doing. Um, I'm very eclectic in my interests. But that's another bullet
2: point to get to. No,
0: it really... I mean, we're talking about it now, but... Mm -hmm. Anyways, so yeah. Nah, just... I don't know, martial arts. It's a whole thing, and... Yeah, I was super flexible back in the day, too. And it was mm-hmm. the only thing I was good at. Well, I was good at memorizing, like, the katas and ju- uh-huh. jutsus was it jutsus back then. I know it's katas. So if you did, if you did karate, it would be katas. Pinyons and katas. Uh-huh. Uh, I was great at performing them. I was, like, mm-hmm. the youngest kid at my school to progress as far as it did. And then I had a spar to progress in my belt, and it was dead.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Also, and- they raised the weapon age.
1: Uh-huh. So you didn't get to do weapons?
0: That was the whole reason I joined. Oh, I'm sorry. I wanted to do staff so bad when mm-hmm. I was like
1: four. Oh, staff, staff's the coolest.
0: And now I do color guard, everyone. So I spin a f- yep. big staff with a fa- piece of fabric on it. And it's pretty. And I don't you have to constantly get hit. Yes. That's what my whole family said when I started to do it. They were like, oh, this
1: is like your staff dream. I'm like, okay, I guess. Cool.
0: But we're here for you, not me. So. Oh, no, <laughs> no.
1: I'm happy to talk back and forth. These are a I conversation, give and take.
0: Yeah, but that's my way of segueing to a question, so mm-hmm. go with it. Anyways, so I've actually been misnaming you everyone. Mr. Christopher Russell is not just a mister. How about Dr. Christopher Russell?
1: Which yeah, yeah asks, yes, call me when somebody's having a heart attack on the plane. Let's see how let's see how much help I am.
0: Well, okay, I'm about to clear that up. Yes. You got a PhD in research. Yes. What kind of research? <laughs>
1: Ah, uh, so it's biomechanical engineering. So it's everything I talked about with crash testing, but it's very specialized. Um, as, as it, on a research side, as you get um, uh, as you go up in education, you just become more specialized, and oftentimes you become so specialized, you're unhirable for that. So, like the work I do now as a design engineer is only really utilizing my mechanical and aerospace degrees, and then sort of the procedure from the research I did with my biomechanical but I'm not working with flesh and blood anymore. I'm just working with uh, aircraft. So um, if I was to fully uh, utilize my biomechanical degree, I might be looking for a hospital. I might be working for a biomedical firm that is 3D printing internal organs or looking at how we can replace bone marrow with um, plastics or various things that the body won't attack, Um, things like that, or like the crash testing that I was doing. How organic how organic matter reacts to mechanical situations.
0: So, if someone's having a heart attack, you might be able to save their heart.
1: I've watched a lot of medical dramas, but no, I'm, I don't have any of the tools. I would have to like replace their heart with a false heart, and I'd be like, "Here you go, somebody else go hook it up because they know what they're doing."
0: <laughs> Close enough.
1: I'm sure. I can say I can save you if you get me help. <laughs>
0: I would. I will not yes. be helping. Yes. Just let that be known, world. Um, I think the human body is one of the grossest things on earth. <laughs> um, I think all of biology is. So for those mm-hmm. into it, I I thank you because that means I don't have to. Mm-hmm. But we were talking about it earlier, so we're going to your tons of hobbies time. Ooh. Oh wait, jazz hold on. I, I gotta circle back yes. because I do love a jazz hand. So we'll do it again. But so everyone in STEM always tells me that like once you get a master's, like. There's no point in getting the PhD. Why'd you go for PhD?
1: Uh, So this was, when was this? So originally um, I came to my master's in 2014, 2015, which was the start of the, um, we, I think we just coming out of an economic downturn, something like that around that time. And I figured it was better to stay in stool since they were going to give me money to keep going. And so that's how I ended up in the master's. And then UVA does this thing where it's like three years for the master's, five years for the PhD. At that point, you might as well stick around and do the extra two years and get the experience. And I enjoyed teaching. Um, I enjoyed, I taught statics and strength of materials. I tell people statics is the science of why things don't move. So you have this book and you have a force gravity pressing down on it. And then assume my hand is like a table or something not moving. And so you have a normal force pressing up on it. And then you have different moments acting on it if somebody was like twisting it or somebody was pushing it from the sides. And it's why does something stay balanced in space? Why doesn't um, your computer that you're watching this on fall into the center of the earth into like fiery hell or something like that? Like, how do forces balance? And strength of materials is well, now we take everything we learned in statics and now things are made of stuff and they're made of different stuff. And different stuff has different material properties, and we need to know how those material properties affect all those forces, and how internal forces inside an object work. And so that is thirty seconds of taking two semesters of courses and like bringing them down to their simplest form.
0: Yeah, that actually is a really good explanation of it. Yes. Um. Yeah. So. Okay, now back to jazz hands. We're moving on. <laughs> okay, so you have a ton of hobbies and we're gonna go down them. You already said Taekwondo, so we answered everything yes. in that section. Let's go to skiing. Where do you go skiing?
1: Uh skiing's my favorite sport. Um I go skiing out west. So my father is one of 12 kids. So huge family. I feel that. Um one of the one of the biggest families that you'll ever hear of. And they grew up in northern Idaho. And so I go out to a play, the two places, one is called Silver Mountain, the other is called Schweitzer Basin, and it is very similar to Colorado skiing. You're going to get a lot of powder, a lot of um, tree skiing, a lot of open space, but you're going to get it out without the Colorado crowds. And so the only thing is that you have to drive an hour and a half from the Spokane, Washington airport. So if you are willing to stomach that drive, This is an oasis of skiing where you won't have huge lift lines and you'll be able to just ski all day and have fun. Um, But I really enjoy the downhill. I started skiing when I was three years old. My father, who was a big skier, um, used to ski race and everything. He got what was called a wee ski, And it's this harness that you put around little kids on their skis and the adult skis behind the, the little toddler or whatever with the wee ski and pulls them back and forth with two little handles and that teaches them to ski and then you do like the pizza that you put the skis together and that's how you slow down and then you go through and you teach things like that but no i i just it's my favorite thing to do there's just a, a rush of going down the mountain hitting moguls uh, how fast can you do it how well um i i don't like heights but i love heights from the skiing perspective it's really weird I don't like heights where I'm taken up really high and I'm sort of detached from the ground. But if I'm in control and I can go down the ground on the skis, it's great. Oh, you're muted.
0: Thanks. So my next question, which is somewhat relevant to that, is Hmm. are you a bunny slope or a black diamond person?
1: Oh, black diamonds. Uh, Double black diamond, triple black diamond. Off the the path, uh, ski through the trees on uncut powder. Uh, the only thing I haven't done is, like, helicopter, uh, dropping out of a helicopter to ski.
0: Wow, okay. Yes. I didn't actually know that was a thing.
1: Oh, yes. Like, um, if you see movies where you have the, the the stump people or whatever, where they're doing the extreme sports, or that that is a thing. That people will drop, you can drop out of a helicopter at a specific angle, land. I never want to do that because the idea is, what if you break something? <laughs> what if you land wrong that one time? So I'm a daredevil in skiing, but not that much of a daredevil.
0: Well, I appreciate it. You have lots to contribute to the world, whether it's biomechanical, engineer-wise, or story writing. Mm -hmm. But as an author, you're probably a big reader, which is also your hobby. So Mm -hmm. what do you read?
1: Uh, Mostly my genre. So lots of fantasy and science fiction. Uh, My favorite author, as we've covered before, Brandon Sanderson. And this is actually, I was at a Fan Expo Salt Lake City last weekend. And so Fan Expo Salt Lake City, three-day event, over 100,000 people, one of the biggest sci-fi fantasy events that you can go to in the year. And so I I went out there, um, sold 102 books, great turnout. But I also got to meet Sanderson and get the first book in his Stormlight Archive signed. Yes, so that was really cool. And so he writes uh, very similar to what I do. Um, He actually has Chris McGrath as a cover artist, like I said, for his Mistborn series. Uh, So read his books, Uh, Jay Kristoff, his uh, Nevernight Chronicles, and his recent Empire of the Vampire, very good books. His prose as an author is what I aim to emulate, that he effortlessly uses figurative language, the way that he describes characters, the way that he describes setting. the way that uh, he uses twists. He, he has some great twists in his books. And they're also sort of grim-dark books without being too dark, that there's still a little bit of a hope. But bad things happen to, to good people, sort of like Game of Thrones and George R. R. Martin. Um, indie side, I told you about Allegro Pescatori. Um, another good friend of mine, like the one I went out to Salt Lake City, Robert Zangari, who wrote A Prince's Errand, very epic fantasy in the style of Wheel of Time. Um, Rob J. Hayes I've been listening to some of his audiobooks. he does excellent Asian fantasy um, like blending Chinese and Japanese cultures in a world where there are demons, where there is steampunk where there are yokai which are essentially their vengeful spirits and gods and a bunch of different fun stuff. Um, another guy called Zamil Akhtar who um, writes Middle Eastern inspired fantasy. First book in his series is Gunmetal Gods it is brilliant. Um, go check it out. It is a reimagining of the Crusades, but with gunpowder weapons and with Cthulhu-style gods in the background that are pulling the strings. So lots of fun there. Um, but like I, so as you can see from what I'm listing, I mostly read indie fantasy now, so self-pubbed and independent. Which is, I'm looking at people that I write in. My peers, what are they doing? And so that's what I enjoy. Most of my listening is now done on audiobook because if I'm not doing my day job, I'm writing. And if I'm not writing, I should be sleeping. Um, so, uh, I get most of my reading, listening done to and from work. And when I'm walking dogs. Wow. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, and actually
1: that's a good segue. Um, because before I did this, I was talking to, uh, michael kramer and kate redding they are the reading they are the ones that do uh sanderson stormlight archive and did the audiobooks for wheel of time they're audiobook narrators and i was looking at them and talking with them about potentially doing divinity's twilight through them and so that would be really cool
0: that would be super cool
1: yes and so they are people at the top of the industry they 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 can add to your fan base and so i'm excited about them bringing their talents to divinity's twilight
0: which is actually a great segue into the next question is who would you want to collab with with reading writing
1: uh so like i said Allegra's great she's my co-author we joke that we are the same person because we have a lot of ideas and we complete each other's thoughts and so that's always fun um talked about the collab with uh Michael Kramer and Kate Redding uh Chris McGrath is already one of my dream cover artists and so already working with him that as a self-published author or as a hybrid or even as a traditional, don't be afraid to reach out and ask that, whether it's for advice on your writing or whether it's for people that you're looking at as editors, formatters, cover artists, etc. cetera, the worst that they can say as anything else in life is no. And often they will be, they, they are nerds just like you and they will be excited, as excited about your cool work as you are. And so. Just reach out, um, try to tap the people that are your dream contacts, because you, you'll you get that yes. You, sometimes you'll get that yes, and it'll just be an, elate, an elating feeling, a thrilling feeling. Feel Well, wow. I'm stumbling over words at the end of the evening, a thrilling feeling. Um, other collab, Sanderson, that would be really cool. Um, he has a lot planned for his Cosmere series, and a lot of people say that I write very similarly to him. Um, I have a big blogger that has their literal quote that I include on the back of um, the Remnant book to hardcover is that he's not the next. I'm not saying he's the next Sanderson yet, but he has the extreme potential to be like him or something like that. And so that's a, a really cool quote because this is a guy at the top of his field. And like I said, his Cosmere is his connected universe of worlds and books. And he has plans to write maybe 40 books in that by the end of his life. And so nobody knows. Uh, hopefully he'll be able to finish everything, but he might be tapping other people to do projects in that world. And I'd love to be uh, eventually big enough to, to work on his stuff. That would be a dream come true. Like um, his, his hero was Robert Jordan. Do you know Robert Jordan? No. Robert Jordan wrote the wheel of time. So if you've seen the Amazon wheel of time series, that's Wheel of Time.
0: That's why I know the name. Yes. But yeah. Robert
1: Jordan died before he could write the last three books, and they tapped Sanderson to finish his, The Wheel of Time. And so that was, by that point, he had already published four novels with Tor, um, his Atlantis, and then his three Mistborn books. But that is what many people credit as what gave him a, a kick in the rear, an extra boost to his I birthday.
0: always think Brandon Sanderson's the one that died, <laughs> and someone else to, like finish yes. his
1: stuff. Nope. No, Other way around.
0: finished. Yeah. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. And so that would be cool. Another Dream Collab. Um oh, let's do a music one. Two Steps from Hell. Um, oh my god, yes. Yes. I love their orchestral pieces, their their sweeping scores. I would love to have them do either a book trailer or to maybe do music for an audiobook or just like a music trailer for my book that people would listen to as they read and like what they play matches up with the scenes. That would be really cool.
0: So fun fact, yes. Dr. Chris over here. Um, for those who don't know Phil Lober Lober? Lober. Oh my God, sorry, Phil. That's the first time <laughs> I've ever stumbled on your name. I always knew it was Lober. Episode 21. He was featured on one of two Steps from Hell's albums, apparently.
1: Oh, he did a voice work for them. He sang.
0: No, apparently he was like collabing with them on like their actual like, instrumental. I forget which okay. thing. Go listen to the episode everyone. You'll find out when he says it. But
1: oh, cool. well, put me in touch with Phil. I'm
0: like putting you in touch with half the guests right now because (laughs) you like to collaborate and I like okay I'll be selfish for a second I like Mm -hmm. getting credit for helping out so (laughs) (laughs) so okay what story that you've read or like heard about that you wish you wrote yourself
1: I wish I wrote myself that's just so brilliant I would normally pick Sanderson something Sanderson but I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that because I love the framing device in Empire of the Vampire by Jake Kristoff so much, that it's that. So his framing device is that it is a, um, a holy warrior at the end of his life, that the vampires have won, that they've defeated humanity. He is the last silver saint, um, an order of people that use silver weapons to fight against the vampires. And so he's the last one left. He is locked up in a tower in, the, in a vampire fortress, and a vampire comes in and says, our empress has decreed that you need to give us your story to be recorded for generations hence. We're going to execute you when you're done, but we need your story. And he says, well, why should I give you your story? Oh, well, you're a, a blood dust addict. So I'm going to give you this, this hit and you're going to tell. And so the guy caves and tells his story. And it is a brilliant framing device. It's told, the whole story is told in first person. Uh, with, with a little bit of third person with the framing. And it goes in and out. And so they'll be ta- he'll be telling about something that he did when he was young, when he was getting into this religious order, when he first found out he was a half vampire. Because all the people in the religious order are, have a, um, a human mother and a vampire father. And that's why that they're, they're special, that they're able to fight against the vampires. But anyway, the, as he's telling his story, the uh, recorder will cut in and be like, well, that's weird or that doesn't mesh with whatever you've told me before and then they'll have some banter back and forth and it is just brilliant the way that it all flows together and then at one point, and th- this isn't spoilers, the The vampire really wants to hear about um, his his uh, stuff about the Holy Grail because there was a prophecy, you find the Holy Grail, you do something to it, you get rid of the vampires and that that's what they're most focused on and he's like, no, this is my story. So he he starts talking about the grail. He's like, no, I think I need to go tell this thing to really tell the story right. And No, 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 I'm going to go tell it. So he just skips back to a different point in his life and starts telling the story from that point and goes back and forth. And it is perfectly paced, brilliantly interwoven. It takes a genius mind to do it.
0: And that's the mind you want and wish (laughs) you had.
1: Oh, well, hopefully, I'll get there. I, I like the books that I write. Like, like I said, I think that "Remnant" that's doing very well is probably the best book I've ever written, and that is thanks to people like Jay Kristoff and Sanderson. That um, I feel like I got a lot of his style of prose in this.
0: Nice. Um. So that's the reading section. Now we're on to the sacrilegious bookshelf behind you. Apparently. <laughs>
1: I don't know Which if we direction said that am I gonna go. on air. I'm going to go this way. Yes.
0: Okay. Everyone, uh, Dr. Christopher Russell over here is into video games. So we're going to yep. ask all the classic video games I like to ask.
1: So let me get this. Right. Okay. So my finger, that shelf is all video games. So there are PS titles from PS1 to PS4 on top. There's some computer down here, some GameCube and Xbox and various different things.
0: Nice. So, what's your favorite genres of games?
1: Uh, this is, again, that I am very diversified. Um, so, back to hobbies, just just a little segue. I was... I played football. I was a sinner. And I was a captain of my football team back in high school. So, I was a jock. I was a nerd. I was... I did drama. I played trumpet. I did everything, pretty much. Did you march? I I marched, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. So that was another thing we could have talked. I did jazz bands, jazz hands, so did a bit of everything, and I I also sing, but so, and you can actually hear recordings of some of the songs from my books on my uh, social media, like Instagram. If you go through my Instagram feed, there'll be recordings of those. But anyway, so games very diverse. But if I had to pick two categories, one would be strategy games for the computer, so like um, Total War. Civilization, uh, Total War is where you um, they throw you into a period of history and you take charge of one of the factions. So it could be like um, the Warring States period of Japan, or it could be um, the rise of Rome, or in the Napoleonic Wars, or something like that. And then you take you you fight the battles, uh, and it's real time um, with your your units, your cavalry, your artillery, whatever. So you take the the role of both the the leader of the faction and all the economics and also the leader of the army um then you have like civilization which is nation building so you take a nation from the dawn of civilization to post modern to like futuristic and you deal with all the technology and the building of your society and culture and then your diplomacy with other nations and things like that that's a really fun game series um but then i also like fps's um i love the halo series I love um, From Software games, Um, Dark Souls, Bloodborne, Elden Ring, Um, all of those fun ones. Uh, What else do I like? I love um, RPGs. I love uh, Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy is probably my favorite game series. Um, I love the Tales series, Tales of Berseria, Tales of Hysteria, Tales of Arise, uh, JRPGs. Um, I love The Witcher games. Um let's see like there's just tons of games. Let me see what else do I have over here. Uh Star Wars games. Uh da, 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 what have I missed? Oh Dynasty Warriors, hack and slash.
0: Yes. I am obsessed with Dynasty Warriors.
1: Yes, I love I love those games.
0: Did you just hear they Greenlit 10? Mm-hmm. Ah oh my god, this is so exciting. Someone else to talk Dynasty Warriors yes. with.
1: Um but actually, so if you like Dynasty Warriors, do you read manga?
0: I don't. Uh, I used to. I just... there's,
1: a, there's a really good series, extremely accurate, um, ex- great characters and everything. It's called Three Kingdom. Uh, well, it's called Kingdom. And it details the rise of the first Qin emperor in Chinese history. So the first emperor of China, Qin, who built the Great Wall of China. And so that is a, a fascinating thing that is like dynasty warriors, mm-hmm. similar to the Three Kingdoms period. But then, if you like the three kingdoms period, and you want to do the nation building stuff. Total War Three Kingdoms uh, came out a few years ago. Great game.
0: Huh, good to know, mm-hmm. because Empires is my favorite. Sp- uh, like, I love Empires. Uh-huh. for those yeah, who Empires don't, Empires is Din- really cool. Mm-hmm. Dynasty Warriors Empires. I don't I, okay, so I have so many. Dynasty- I have a lot of questions now about the yes. video games. So let's go back to Final Fantasy real fast because yep. it's your favorite. It's like my top, one of my top favorites too. Mm-hmm. Which numbers are your favorite?
1: Uh, so th- this question always gets asked when I mention Final Fantasy. My favorite's 6. And then after 6, oh, after six I want to say 9? 7 and 9, probably. And then like 8, 10, and 12 and 13. Thir- 12 was the first one I played. And I, this was uh, the summer of my senior year of high school. It was a greatest hits PS2 edition that my parents had gotten me and I never played. It was sitting up in the, on a closet shelf. And I tore my MCL during summer football practice. It was going to be four weeks to heal. I did heal. I did come back and start and play the season, but I basically had to be taken care of or pull myself up and down steps and crutch everywhere for four weeks um, until I was fully healed. But I popped in Final Fantasy 12 because it just been sitting around, and I loved it. That Final Fantasy is considered one of the Final Fantasy XII is considered one of the weaker titles in terms of story, but it has a brilliant world um, with airships, with a bunch of different feuding kingdoms, and some might say that that is very similar to the the setting of My Divinity's Twilight series. And you can see where it came from. It came uh, from um, all the things that I read, but also from my love of Final Fantasy. Uh, the airships, the way that character interactions work, the, K- the way that fights work. People have told me that they could almost see the the battles in Divinity Twilight being like boss fights, the way that they're scripted and acted, things like that. And I find that really cool because I love the boss fights and stuff from Final Fantasy. Um, but anyway, 6, 9, um, then like uh, 13, maybe. The thir- I, I have a soft spot for 13, even though people say it's the infinite hallway.
0: 13 is my
1: favorite. I, I love the storytelling in 13 and the way that the group comes together. And I think that it gets a lot of bad flack.
0: I, first of all, I hate open world games in general. Uh-huh. So I was so happy
1: with the hallway. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I like both. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I was 14 when the game came out. I had to stop 14 to get writing done. No, I was just the age 14 when 13 oh, okay. came out. Okay. And so Hope being an angsty 14-year-old, I was like, this kid gets it.
1: Wait, were you 14? Are you sure? Because I got it... I graduated high school, and I bought 13 that summer. It came out in 2009. I took it with, came out 2010. I
0: think. Well, that's a year apart, so... Yeah. Hold up. That might have been the Japanese release date. Was I not 14?
1: I it was released in Japan December two thousand nine and March twenty ten. Yep.
0: How old was I? I guess it was fifteen.
1: Well, I graduated high school at seventeen, so if you're you're behind me. Then you would have been. I
0: graduated when I was seventeen as well. Okay. So I was seventeen. I also. In I,
1: I started kindergarten when I was four, so there was an early year. So that Same. might be how we're making everything. up. No, okay. like no. I'm okay, just so be... to... Okay, So you should have been sixteen.
0: Was I 16? Was yeah.
1: I 16 yet? <laughs> oh, you're 16. You would have been 15 because it would have been the end of the year, right?
0: Yeah, I guess. Hold up. Let me just get a calculator on everyone because no one here wants to hear us struggle math. Okay, yeah. so 2010 minus 1993 is 17. What I would have been 16. Okay. 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 We worked mind. it out, guys. <laughs> Yay. But no, Hope was angsty. I was yep. pissy and angsty at that age, too. And I was like, this kid gets it. Also, Hope was the strongest magic user. And I was like, great, that'd be me, too. I told everyone, I'm a glass cannon. I'm not a tank. <laughs>
1: uh, I liked uh, Lightning. Um, what did I? Lightning and uh, Fang. Those were my favorite characters. Lightning, I love I love fang, Fang's character design. Mm-hmm. Such a good
0: ca- like. I think mm-hmm. probably the best character design in all Final Fantasy. And she has an Aussie accent. Yeah. Like uh-huh. Fang is I love the fact that Fang was designed as a man and like mm. and as a man in the last second they were like, all right, we're gonna make I
1: didn't know that, but I see it. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah, like
1: straight up, like they were in the casting process and they were like, you know what, let's just make Fang a woman. Well, because the the thing is about Final Fantasy, at least until Final Fantasy 15, had always been balancing the sexes of the cast. And so if you had made Fang a man, it would have been imbalanced. What I, I'm looking at the cast as it is. Um, yeah, three and three. Yep.
0: And <laughs> Final Fantasy 15, you mean Final Fantasy Bachelor Party?
1: Final Fantasy um boy band or boy trip or I, I forget exactly what it boy road trip or something. And everybody gave that flat coming out. And I remember reading all the articles because I was excited for it. I thought it worked. I, I, I enjoyed it. driving around in the car. With all these guys as they get to know each other, and they have some some deep bonds because they all knew each other before they go on the adventure, and so it was really cool. Like all the moments, like stop to camp, and then Prompto takes photographs, and then Noctis broods, and Gladio trains, it, and uh, what's the line of one? I'm forgetting I'm the Glasses guy, Ignis with the cooking. I've discovered a new recipe. <laughs> I love that.
0: Yeah, no, it's funny. Everyone at New Mean High School says I'm Hope. Everyone that met me after high school says I'm Prompto.
1: Uh-huh. I I see it, yeah.
0: <laughs> Thanks, world. Prompto's the fan
1: favorite. I'll be favorited. Mm-hmm. But. um, I think Ignis was my favorite out of that crew. But Prompto was really good, too. Mm-hmm. Did you play the DLCs? I have not played the DLCs. I need to. Okay. Um, because I love Arden. I think Arden is one of the best villains in the series since um, Kefka like Kefka and Sephiroth, that he channels that same energy. And so this is actually a segue back to books. Um, When I started Divinity's Twilight, well, the first thing I drew was the map. And that was a a map that I ended up doodling in um, thermodynamics class in second year of high school. This is a blown-up version of the world map. You can see here that I take with me to conventions now. I don't think I had it at GalaxyCon where you met me. But you can see that on my website. Um, and it's also going to be in all the books that you get. But I doodled the map. That was where it started with the geography for me. The second thing that's in Divinity's Twilight was the villain. That I, I came up with the villain because I had this really cool idea that still hasn't fully come in, that people are going to have to read the series to see about how it plays out. And um, there's still some book three things, this stuff that we need to do before the villain is fully fleshed out and you know what's going on. But I had this awesome big bad, this guy that had amazing reasons for doing what he was doing, that's very philosophical, very suave, that's able to manipulate people um, at the same time as being a super powerful force. And Arden and Kefka and Seph, sort of the, what, where I got it from, like Final Fantasy, that subconsciously, I, I realize it now looking back, but these were some great villains that I really latched onto that were extremely compelling. And I I had to create protagonist heroes against the villain that I started with,
0: which answers the next part. So we'll skip to the ne- part after that. If you had to be Isekai into a video game world, which one would it be? And do you know what Isekai means?
1: Yes, uh, I, I I read manga and I watch tons of anime. That again, I I will watch college football, American football. If we have any international viewers, I will watch college football, NFL football know like m- really movie stars and know the names of NFL players and be able to talk about that and then I'll be watching isekai that I'm all over the place with what I enjoy that I- and I'm very thankful for that that I'm able to get out enjoyment out of so many different things but anyway uh, world that I was to be isekai to um, got to go through all these because it needs to be a place where you can get some really cool magic but you're not going to be um, you're not going to be imprisoned for it, you're not tortured, and you're not going to be forced into like a big war right off the bat or something like that.
0: That is exactly the yeah. checklist. I'm like, how yes. soon will I die? Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think about a Final Fantasy world or a book world where that would be possible. I feel like Final Fantasy worlds are tend to be safer than most epic fantasy book worlds. Um, thirteen. You only get magic if you're a Lassie and everyone hates you. You're ostracized. Right. Um,
0: ten. You have a giant whale after you nonstop.
1: Yes. I feel like twelve or fourteen would have been the, would be the safest. Or I might go off the wall. Um, I think I want to pick a game called uh, Tales of Zestiria, or Tales oh. of Brasiria, which is a prequel to it. And so this is a JRPG series. It was designed by, who is it by? It's Bandai Namco. Do you know Bandai? Yeah. It's another Japanese company. But it was designed to be a competitor to like Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy. And so typically in their games, they focus a lot more on the cast than the plot. So they give you a, a crew of maybe six characters of typically split gender, and they all have something interesting or quirky about them. And they either rub each other wrong when they start off, or maybe a couple of them have some history with each other. But you get all these cool little skits in between them as they, they learn to interact, as they learn to fight and work together. And So skits and camping and character interactions and scenes that are not the main plot are part of the standard formula. You still have that big fantasy overarching plot, but there are a lot of little moments that I absolutely adore because um, I'm very much an atmospheric reader or enjoyer of media or very much a character enjoyer of media. That's how you hook me. And so in those worlds, they make a bond with um, what are called seraphs, that they're essentially spirits, um, very elf-like in nature. And they make a bond with them, and that is how they get magic. And they're able to use the type of magic that the, the, the spirit has, some sort of element. And it's really cool because you both get a, a best friend and you get magic. And they go with you on adventures and you get to do cool stuff. And th- there's not... There are some really bad things that happen in those games, but ordinary people that are not part of the main party aren't really affected. Or if they are, it's in a small way, and so I think it would be relatively safe while getting cool stuff.
0: Nice. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a couple off-the-wall games I gotta ask if you've played now, because you seem to know everything else in my life (laughs) and you like playing. Uh, Have you ever played Legends of Dragoon? Yes!
1: Yes! Oh, somebody else. Okay, All right. I'll be right back. See, people... Now you
0: see the sweatpants that I was Oh! I'm so excited.
1: (laughs) Okay. I probably just woke up the house and, like, all the dogs and everything. Okay. So, Legend of Dragoon, One of my favorite games ever. I still have the Greatest Hits edition. I still play it from time to time. It's brilliant. The, The combat system, the characters, the way everything comes together. I don't even care. The graphics were amazing when I started playing way back when. But even even now I think they hold up. That you, you still everything comes across.
0: Like but people, it's like the, polygon graphics yes. and like it's so easy to get immersed
1: still. The the rhythm system to the combat was amazing. Like allowing your basic attacks to be more powerful than your special attacks if you learn them. I I always love that. But the characters, great. Th- this was probably one of my gateways to gaming. Um I forget I, I got a PS2. I did not play this on PS1. My parents got me a PS2 very early on. This is one of the first games that they got me. And I, yeah, I think that they were thinking, well, he likes fancy books. So he'll like this. And I, I just adored it. And funnily enough, so this is um, elementary school me got to someplace in the third disc where there is a walkway that you have to go across. And there's little shocks coming up from below that yes. knock you off the walkway. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I could not figure that out for the life of me, for some little elementary school me. And so I kept getting knocked off, and I would just go and say, "Okay, I really love the game. I'll just go restart again." So I played the game maybe three or four times during that period. And then when I was in middle or high school, I finally figured out, like, "Oh, you do this." And so I finished the game, and I, I've played it again multiple times since then. I'm actually probably due to go and replay it again, and this is a, a good catalyst if I if I find time.
2: I'm so one, happy to. Yes, yeah, so one of
1: my favorite games of all time. They uh... need. I want them to do a remake. Like, every time I see a petition for them to make a remake of this, I, I sign it immediately. And then Send I forward it to all me. my friends. Yes. <laughs> oh my Now, God. I don't understand. It's such a cult hit. And it would do as well as a Final Fantasy, a Tales title, any of these other ones. Yes. There, there must be something going on with the rights. That must be it.
0: So, I have a question for you. Yeah. Who is your favorite character? Who would you like to, like, addition the most? Or what? Like oh. That might be separate people. Like... I have a specific reason to ask this, and I actually haven't said this on the podcast yet because okay. no one else cared about this damn game.
1: Okay. So let me try to remember the characters. So you had uh Shanna, right? Am I getting yep, it right? Where sure. was Rose? Mm-hmm. Albert. Um there was Fritz, but Fritz oh wait, I'm not gonna say anything. There was there was complications with Fritz.
0: The game is like twenty years old by now. I think spoilers are fine.
1: The girl with the <laughs> hammer was that start Maru. With Maru. Okay. What was? Is it Dart the main character? Dart's the main guy. Dart. Yeah. Okay. So who am I missing? I'm missing the martial Haschel, artist. Herschel? Herschel. Ah, Heschel. Uh, yeah. I think Herschel was my favorite to combo. Him and Albert, and they had the most complicated combos. See? Um, okay. I think that uh. I'm trying to think because I, I pulled out the the manual now and I'm looking at everything. Sorry, sorry, podcast people, that we've gone down this rabbit hole. No, uh, I'm not. <laughs> I who's my favorite character? It's probably a toss up between Rose and I really like Maru's personality, and that they were all great. So maybe like Rose, Maru, and Hashel. Uh huh. I really liked all those. I really liked Asher's relationship. That, I was she his daughter? Is that what it turned yes. out to be? Okay, because he always acted like grandpa. she was. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh huh.
0: Oh my god! I actually killed yes. like glitched the game one time, uh, and I was so angry.
1: <laughs> what happened?
0: So during like the end part where they're fighting through like personal crisis of character development. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so okay, spoiler for game mechanics, Cashel <laughs> needs to hit zero health uh-huh. in order to trigger the end of the game. I had some weird item mm-hmm. that like kept him like at least one health.
1: <laughs> and so it was just <laughs> So impossible. you soft locked yourself. I
0: did. And then I was like, oh, I think that's why. And I put it on him because I hated using him. Uh-huh. And I was like, if whenever they force me to use him, it's gonna be horrible.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. What was and it? So, uh Double slash that was the first one that you got with Dart. Double slash. Double and, slash. And, and, yes, and they always said it based on the rhythm and it was they it, it wasn't cheesy then. it might be cheesy now, but though the way that they said it, they called out their moves. Gust of Whirlwind dance. That was Albert's most complicated one. Yes, I, mm-hmm. I spent hours learning that and memorizing it and trying to get it perfect. Yes. Okay, so
0: here's the thing why I ask it. Because uh-huh. the addition system, like, like you were saying, it's not like any musical rhythm, people. It's mm-hmm. just like on-screen cues. Yes. I was the worst at doing them when I was young. When <laughs> I played the game in grad school, because that's what I was doing while I was working as a substitute teacher. It's yep. just pulling up my laptop and emulating it. I literally never failed a Meru. Uh-huh like, in my whole playthrough. I was like, how on earth am I getting her so easy? And then I, like, called some kid over, and it was some football player, and he couldn't get her, and he got Kongol. Uh-huh. Like, the mini giant. And I never got Kongol down. And I was like, maybe this oh, is Oh, that's a good why thing. I forgot
1: about Kongol. Sorry.
0: So that's yeah, was, why I yeah. asked, because I'm always yeah. like, okay, people, I think it's personality-based, too.
1: Oh. That's true. I'd say that in personality, I'm pretty similar to Albert.
0: Yeah. <laughs> the king. I see it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so a doctor, a king, yes, yes. look at that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm some like slutty little dancer. Anyways, up <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. but so no, Legend Dragoon, one of the best games out there.
1: Yes, go play it. Encourage guys.
0: everyone play it. Here's the cover again.
1: It's a podcast. It looks <laughs> awesome, and, and they're dragoons. They 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 have powers of dragons, and they get these cool armor outfits with wings. I mean, elemental
0: dragons. Like... It's yes. basically Power Rangers.
1: Up? <laughs> oh, yes, it is. Yes, and it it's the best. I, I always hated killing the dragons. I was like, you you want their powers, but that's like the worst part of the game. You have to kill those majestic creatures.
0: Oh no! <laughs> I was like, okay, let's You're get like, this power.
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm.
0: I know i swear i'm a good person people that listen <laughs> um but oh the other game have you ever heard of white knight chronicles
1: i have i have not played it
0: oh my mm-hmm. god one of the best games i don't think people gave a shot
1: uh-huh um also kind of
0: like legends of dragoon everyone yes. is a knight <laughs> and mm-hmm. turns into basically a gundam yes but medieval style mm-hmm but the reason why I like that, the reason why I love Legends of Dragoon is the story. The story is amazing. Yes. hmm And, yeah, so... <laughs> and
1: there's three discs, and there's, like, what? There's three or four climaxes to the game that it just ramps up repeatedly.
0: There's four discs. Yeah. And there's, oh, like, four multiple discs, climaxes per disc.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Like,
0: when they say, <laughs> save a cat, kill yes. God, mm-hmm. holy cow, Legends of Dragoon took it every direction. Yes. Mm-hmm. And just made it more compelling. Mm-hmm. Also, very interesting battle mechanics, like with each individual boss. Mm-hmm. That I had, like when I watch on Twitch, people play it. I'm like, uh, "Do you know this one? You want me to tell you?" And they're like, "Actually, please." It's been three hours. I'm like, "Okay,
1: <laughs> yes." There, there were some interesting ones, like, uh, what was it?" The um in the Wingley City where it has your it has your level every single time it hits you or uses a certain ability. And you just if you don't kill it fast, that you're just going to be stuck there for ages. And then there's um there was the trap guy in disc one. There is um I'm trying to think of other really memorable bosses. The
0: wingly that had the blue dragoon spirit when you yes. fight her, if you yeah. dragoon
1: out, she like rages out and doesn't.
0: The game doesn't yep. indicate it. She and
1: just... then before you get to her, there is um the ship, the ghost ship, where you're finding yes. out the history of that world, and you you have to kill the spirits in a specific way. Uh-huh. yeah
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, people. It's a just yes. go play the game, mm-hmm. and then reach back out to us. Speaking yes. of games, though, and back to you, Doctor mm-hmm. Chris. For wrestle. Uh, I just love saying Doctor Chris. <laughs> Anyways, so if your story was to be opted for a video game, how involved would you want to be in
1: that? Oh, tons. I, 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 I don't want to say that I'd stop writing because I, I like to keep writing for my fans and to keep giving them content but it would be one of my main priorities that um, I would, this, like I said, this is already written to be similar to a Final Fantasy game or Legend of Dragoon or any of these other ones. And I think that it would be really good like that, the cast that you go through and control them. You have a party. Um, I think that this would just be a perfect RPG. Uh, You could do a strategy game off of it, focusing more on the cultures in the world that um, it would be about the nations. And then you would have heroes that would be like hero units um, within the nations, but I think you could go a lot of different ways, and I would love to do that.
0: What parts of the video game would you want to be a part of?
1: Um, pretty much everything. <laughs> uh, character design, uh, graphic design, um, populating locations and locales, like what what is the the world building of this area going to be? Um, game mechanics. Uh, I would love to be uh, about the the combat what cool thing are we going to do? Like Legend of Dragoon for the attacks. Um, Cause I think I, I, I could come up with a lot of cool stuff based on the, uh, the, the lore of the world.
0: I'm so happy you're this excited too. Cause I've yes. thought about this many times. I, I know mm-hmm. the things I write would make excellent hack and slash games mm-hmm. with like RPG story. And uh-huh. Because I'm such a dynasty warriors, Stan, I like the older games where you had like six moves
1: so, so funny story, and then you continue. I didn't know what Stan meant until last night.
0: Wow.
1: I was watching, um, I've recently got, renewed my HBO Max subscription because I wanted to watch House of the Dragon. And I decided, ah, I'm just gonna watch something fluffy first. So I decided to watch the Harley Quinn DC series. I don't know if you've seen that.
0: I have not yet.
1: Uh, it's, it's really good, uh, gory, but good. So um, very great, uh, very good timing on joke delivery and everything. But she used Stan, uh, calling somebody a Stan. I was like, "Oh, I need to go look this up." So that—that's uh, how I learned what a Stan was.
0: Yeah. Um. Uh, but yeah, I was like, okay, let me choreograph each character's six-move combo and like mm-hmm. all the charge attacks and all the Mushu attacks.
1: Like, I would oh look. yes, from the martial arts background, and then with you, with your um color guard background and and dance background, yeah, dance background, yes.
0: Like I think, okay. So for Dynasty Warriors, speak everyone that whip combo that they make you do in like the Renbu system of six. Even mm-hmm. though six did suck, like that mm-hmm. whip system was amazing.
1: So speaking, so talking about favorite weapons, my favorite weapon is a chain whip. My my I favorite like fantasy weapon. Yeah,
0: mine's a fan. Yours is
1: a fan. Uh huh. Mm-hmm.
0: Like two kiaos type, not uh, Mitsuhide. She, whatever his name is in Samurai Warriors, the giant uh-huh. one metal fan. No, I want the twin metal fans.
1: Uh-huh. Or is that Zhao uh, Chan? Or did Zhao Chan have the um, the the sticks with the balls on the end?
0: They're actually maces. I thought maces. they were paper lanterns for the longest oh, okay. time, uh-huh. but they're maces. And I should have just had that combo earlier today on the Facebook group. But uh-huh. yeah, no. And then she went from the maces to the whip. But oh. I just like the two Kiaos, like
1: Da Kiao, Xiao Kiyos,
0: like fans. Like, pew, pew.
1: Oh, okay. Um, not uh, Zugi Leon and Simi Yi. Yeah, no, advanced. I don't want
0: the feathers. Okay. Okay. I want like the folding fans that are paper that you just like hot day yourself. Uh-huh. And I know myself, guys, I know I'm a staff person. Like my whole life is staffs. Every cosplay I've done had a staff prop. And I didn't realize it until they were all together one time.
1: So you, you have somebody that plans cosplay for you, right?
0: Uh, yeah, uh, that's Kiwo Nina Mori, everyone. The first Hot Topics episode.
1: <laughs> yep, so I, I need somebody like that because I go to a lot of cons and I want to start planning more outfits, especially since I can't fit into my Obi-Wan pants from the last outfit. I've, I've been running people. This is just what happens when you hit 30. I'm, I'm a big into running, and I'll do like five miles. You just start to put on belly weight at hit 30. That's what I'm blaming it on. Okay, so let's <laughs> yeah. go
0: over this real fast. I'm introducing you to a person. Okay, let's go to the media. list. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, uh, so.
1: Phil, who does the the music that collabed with uh, Two Steps from Hell, and yep. your cosplay person.
0: Yes. Uh-huh. Wow. Let's see who gets the most out of this episode, everyone.
1: <laughs> I feel like uh, top top of my list is there's a few Final Fantasy characters, but uh, top of my list is like Zuko from Avatar: The Last Airbender.
0: That's doable. Mm-hmm. Very doable. Um, I'll send you photos of what Kiwi made for me later. Uh-huh. Oh, you played RPGs. Morgan yes. from Dragon Age. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, that's really cool.
0: Yeah. The pe- one people know me most for and I think it's just because
1: I didn't do anything to my hair. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, who from Dragon Age would be cool? Um, nobody from Dragon Age really jumps out at me. Um... Probably a few Final Fantasy characters like um, let's see Sephiroth's the, the classic um, an Arden I, I would love to do an Arden you notice that these are all villains uh, I'm trying to think of hero designs that I really liked and I'm kind of pulling a blank who from Dynasty Warriors because they're all heroes and villains uh, Dynasty Warriors um, Lu Bei uh, Guan Yu um let's see. Uh Zugi Leong. Um Simi Yi, I I like the strategist ideas, the the, the long robes that are very uh, voluminous.
0: I was about and to the, say, the, are the you a shoes fan? <laughs> um because you said Guan Yu Lui Bei. Um, no, um
1: as far as I'm like um way sympathizer. Like again, I go for villains. So um Hao Dun was my main. Like uh, he's the one, so the 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 guy with the eye patch. No, oh, yeah. Um, let's see, who else was there? I'm trying to think. Uh, I don't think, aside from him and Satsao, I'm not sure that they had any other really cool designs.
0: Honestly, um, I also never saw Wei as the villain until everyone started saying it in the fandom. I was like, Reality? so.
1: The reason that Wei is viewed as the villain is because Romance of the Three Kingdoms, the original book, was written by a Shu sympathizer. And so that's where they got their source material. And I only then it's read also,
0: like 50 pages of that. Also,
1: also, everybody loves an underdog story. And so Wei, uh, Zhao Zhao, is in the strongest position throughout most of the Three Kingdoms era. And it's actually um his son uh Zhao pi is he's he's king of Wei. that they all eventually declare themselves kings of their individual reign realms they give up on preserving the han dynasty that came before Um, and sao pi i think it was either him or his son is manipulated by sima yi or one of sima yi's descendants and that they reverse roles essentially. That the Simas become that they win the the Three Kingdoms era. They the Sima dynasty is the one that comes after. Mm-hmm. And I forget that I think they called it the Jin dynasty. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, so the you've later the, game.
0: Yeah. Well, no, because in the later games they introduced the Jin story. Oh,
1: okay. They I've I haven't played it. I'll have to. Which one of those do you recommend to get that? Eight. Eight. Okay.
0: Yeah, I think is it's that the be... open
1: world one? No, that's nine. Okay, so not the open world one, good. Because I heard bad things about that.
0: It wasn't the worst, uh-huh. if you like the characters.
1: My favorites that I play over and over again are 4 and 5. 4 is the best! Yes. Like, I know
0: everyone says 5 is great. No, I am obsessed with 4. Yeah. It had the best soundtrack, the best Lubu
1: theme, yes. and it's just like... Oh, there you go, Lubu. Oh, yeah. Uh, that'd be a cool one to do cosplay for.
0: And... I just I think four is the best. I miss having all those bodyguards follow you. Yep. Oh, do you lose that in later games? In uh, five, it's the one bodyguard mm-hmm. instead of the eight or the. But that bodyguard's like a like a hero level person. Because I remember
1: that um, like if you created your own character and your character became good enough that they would start giving you units, and I always thought that was really cool.
0: Yeah, uh, in 6, I think they stopped. Yeah, 6 and 6, there hasn't been bodyguards.
1: Oh, huh. weird. That was, like, some of the cool thing. they like, you are an important character in Chinese history. You get people. Yeah, uh-huh.
0: and no matter where I would run on the map, these poor, like, eight little minions would follow me, <laughs> and I'd, like, watch them die one by one. I'm like, get good and keep up.
1: Uh, Use them as fodder for Lubu when he Shut comes up. out of Zia Castle.
0: It was always the Namon levels because I'm yes. a Wu stan. Mm. I love Wu. Mm. I, which is weird because I hate the color red.
1: Uh Zhao Yu has great character design. That'd be another one. Um Lu Shun is always who I say. Lu Shun. Um he was the strategist, right? He was the young
0: strategist with like the two blades. Uh-huh. And he wears crop tops half the time, and I'm like, sure. With a little like sparrow tail. I'm like, yeah, I'll totally do it. Mm-hmm. But I was a Xinjiang Zhang stand, and then the Da Kia's and Zhao Kiao were there, and I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. And it's just like Wu is just like the young, like hit like the hit people vibe. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, this is who I want to be with. Uh-huh. <laughs> but no, if,
1: if you really want um three kingdoms history and a fair portrayal of it, um it's uh three kingdoms. It is a t- television drama produced in China. Um the guy the actor that steals the the show is the actor for South South.
0: Huh. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, did you see the Dynasty Warriors movie? Oh, which one? They the have one, at, one. Literally, they made Hong Kong made a Dynasty Warriors movie last year and I saw I heard it was happening. I was like, "Oh, okay, fine." And then the trailer popped up on Netflix, so I clicked mm-hmm. it and I was like, "All right, let's see if we're getting another Red Cliff or whatever." And then as soon as it started, it started the actual Dynasty Warriors music, and I was like, oh shit, they made it based off the game. Oh wow, it's on Netflix. Yes, it's a Netflix movie, everyone, if you're in the States. Oh my goodness, it has gotten panned horribly, but i probably like it. (laughs) Oh no, I absolutely Uh, loved it. uh Uh-huh because it was so true to the video game people who didn't yeah. understand the video game were like what on earth they're yeah. rid- running across a tidal wave they're summoning lightning at each other I'm like yes well,
1: that's also just sort of how they portrayed this period everyone was larger than life like do you think any of them had the exact deeds that they have written in the book no that, that was all exaggerated to begin with so like there is magic in the games
0: and that's wonderful yes. But no, the whole thing about the movie is that people didn't get that it's based off the video game. And that mm-hmm. when you watch the movie, it's the video game soundtrack of what mm-hmm. you're listening to while they're doing their stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's also super campy and like traditional Hong Kong like action. It's, it's just good. I recommend all Dynasty Warriors fans watch it just so it's fun. Mm-hmm. Also, Cap or Cao however you personally say it, everyone. I'm pretty sure Cao was is the correct way. Mm-hmm. is really hot. But
2: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> that's a me thing. Uh, <laughs> But also, Wu wasn't really in it a lot. I will say that the movie covers the very beginning. Like, this could have easily been a series if people liked
1: it more. Uh-huh. So Wu was not in it a lot. I wish that they they liked it more.
0: Me Yeah, too. so so
1: what did they cover? They covered the uh, Yellow Turban Rebellion. And they didn't the,
0: uh... even finish... The, like, they didn't even finish um, Dong Zhuo.
1: Like, uh, Dong du... Zhuo occurs after the Yellow Turban. Yeah, right after. Mm-hmm. So they, they, okay, so they got the yellow turban and didn't finish Dong Zhuo.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. You got like Lubu didn't even betray him yet.
1: Okay. So, yeah, they didn't get very far. No, but they made a good movie for Mm -hmm. us
0: as fans. But, anyways, so other parts of history that you're into, Chris, is that you're fascinated by Greek and Roman history. And I was wondering what makes them so fascinating for you? Um,
1: Probably, it's a very interesting time period in history because it's uh, very cultured on one hand, or I'm not trying, I'm not going to degrade one civilization versus another, but it's a dichotomy between the tech level and what people considered to be culture and civilized versus what they considered to be barbaric. Um, and so you have the the Romans with their aqueducts, with their incredible architecture, with their legion system and their roads. And then you had the Germanic and the Gaelic tribes and a bunch of different, there there are a lot of fascinating cultures at the time that you can um, delve into and a lot of great storytelling. Like um, I'm a big fan of the Iliad, the Odyssey, um, some great early what we would call fantasy pieces because uh, they do have a hint of truth in them, but there's a lot of larger than life stuff like Achilles, the warrior, or the Odyssey itself, every all the mythology that's involved in it, all the Greek mythology, which is fascinating. Um it's it's very interesting the interplay between humanity and their gods at those at those times, and how can we port that over into um modern fantasy settings? Um, having a pantheon that I I enjoy that, like my, my Divinity's Twilight series, there was one creator god that split himself into seven parts in order to be more efficient. And so there is a pantheon. And I, I take a lot of inspiration from the Greco-Roman period for that. Um, but a lot of the, the tales, the epics, um, um, a lot of the, the Roman battles, like I study the, uh, what is it, the Punic Wars, the three wars that Rome fought against Carthage. Um, some very interesting stuff to come out of that, like uh, Hannibal, um, if you know the story of him, that he crossed the Alps and then with terrorized. The yes, with the elephants and then terrorized central Italy. And that he eventually had to retreat because he just couldn't take Rome, but he beat every Roman general that came at him. But no, there's just lots of interesting stuff and interesting people that um, it, like any other period of history, there's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of evil and greed. But um, that there's a lot of larger-than-life figures. It's, um, it's glorified to a certain degree, and it's interesting to take a look at that. But yes, I, I love a lot of the culture and the arts that came out of it too. So mythology, warfare, probably the big things for me.
0: Nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay. I came up with this question because I don't know history, people. And those who have been around long enough know that I'm starting to get into history because of the pandemic and all the shows that are, quote, fictionalized. My Mm -hmm. defense for me not knowing history other than through TVs is that I saw it happen. It's real. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) But so I asked this question. So if the Greeks and Romans had to go to war, who do you think would win? Not knowing that they actually were around the same time.
1: Yes. Yes. And so the the Greek, you are right that the Greek Empire started before the Roman Empire, that they have a much more storied history. Um, I don't know the exact dates, but they go back into the thousands BC, whereas Rome only cements itself as a power um, starting around four hundred BC. And then I think that they finally finished their Italian wars. Uh, maybe three or two hundred, and that's when you start the Punic Wars. But Rome had a very quick ramp up period to controlling the entire Mediterranean by um, early AD. By because uh, Caesar was early AD as well in the in the first century AD, uh, Julius Caesar. But they also called their emperors Caesar. But the Greeks, their their peak was under Alexander the Great, which is when they had the um, there they're basically what we call the Hellenic Empire that he marched across, uh, took a lot of Turkey, took a lot of what we know as Persia, moved down into Iraq, Iran, um, got as far as India, where he dies. I, I forget exactly why, but it was a sickness. And then his generals split up his empire and they um, one of the, the the part of his empire was in Egypt, and that's why there's a lot of Greek influence in Egypt. Like there was the Library of Alexandria that burned down, the Pharos Lighthouse. Um, there's a lot of uh, that Greek architecture that you see. And then there's also Roman architecture because Rome ruled Egypt at one point. And so Egypt's a really interesting blend of cultures. I, I hope to go there one day. Um, but the Greeks eventually, they waned and the Romans conquered them. Um, again, that I'm more interested in the, the broad strokes and like the battles and the different things like that and the mythology. So I don't know exactly when that was, but it was very early on in Roman expansion.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you would, if you had to choose, would you rather live in ancient Greece or ancient
1: Rome? Ancient Greece was more peaceable that if you were in ancient Rome, and I guess if you're not born to a noble or you don't have, um, even nobles, even nobles went to war, but it was uh, Rome was very focused on expansionism in the army. So there was a good chance that you were going to end up in the army if you didn't have the your ducks in a row for your life if you didn't have privilege. And in Greece, they were a lot more interested in the arts um, outside of Sparta. If you were born in Sparta, you you probably would be brought up in the martial arts in some way. Um, in the other city states, you would probably know how to go to war, you would probably train with a militia, but you would uh, be allowed to pursue the arts, philosophy. Well, if you're a man, um, some some women owned property, some women did pursue um, the different types of arts, but as with a lot of different older cultures, it was a lot more advantageous to be a man. But if you were a woman, Greco-Roman period, aside from modern day, was great because you could actually inherit your your spouse's property if they died you could be a landholder you could own slaves which we, we don't say that's a good thing but it was part of uh, what they considered standing at that day and age I'm not condoning that practice by any way I'm just talking about it historically yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I definitely Greek um, and I also all the Greeks could vote so they had a true democracy where one person one vote and so that would be really cool to see.
0: Nice. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was a very easy answer. Yes. All right, cool. So, you say that you know Japanese history as well. Mhm. Okay, so what's your favorite period in Japan?
1: Uh, Warring States period. So, you you're starting to see a theme. So,
0: so war- we're warriors.
1: Yes, so <laughs> so Warring States period, I'm probably going to get the dates wrong. It ended 1600 to 1603, I want to say, uh, Battle of Sekigahara is considered the ending point um, when uh, Tokugawa Yasu beats the. Uh, I think it was. It wasn't Toyotomi because Toyotomi was the uh, the one that took over from Oda Nobunaga. Um, it was Mitsuhide. Uh, he meets Mitsuhide at the Battle of Sekigahara. Um, uh, Mitsuhidi had taken over from overlord Toyotomi, Hideyoshi Toyotomi or Hideyoshi, um, who ruled for maybe 15, 20 years, but he didn't sire an heir, and he was only acting for the emperor. Because the Warring States period, it wasn't to be emperor, it was to be shogun. Um, it was to be the one that held basically all power of the state. Um the, the shogun was a essentially like a prime minister that had the power of the king and the commander-in-chief emperor was uh, just a figurehead that they 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 had the divine right to rule that they were basically a deity but that they weren't that they they did not govern themselves and japan actually still has an emperor today that doesn't govern it's um i'm not sure whether it they have more power or less power than england's king Uh, i guess they don't have a queen anymore which is very sad but um I think England's king has more power than the emperor of Japan. But anyway, um, Warring States period, very interesting. A lot of great um, figures. Um, Odu Nobunaga might be one you recognize. Tokugawa Yasu, Uasegi um, Kenshin. Um, there, there's a lot of very famous figures. Uh, Date Masamuni. And I also um, I love that history, reading it from textbooks. I also love playing it. Um, For example, Sekiro is a great one that's set during the Warring States period. Not a lot of of the actual uh, history, though. Um, Neo, um, Neo 1 and Neo 2, they bring demons into it. um, You play a different character in both games, but you're fighting against demons that have been summoned back, but they follow some of the history of that era. And it's really cool how they use fantasy elements to explain how history played out. Um, let's see what's another one. Um, there's another one that's on the tip of my tongue, but I'll remember it later. But no, lots of lots of cool stuff, lots of interesting culture. Um, the introduction of firearms into their warfare and how that worked very interesting. Um, the introduction of Christianity around the same time. Well, yes, it was around the same time into their world and how that played a role because they had um essentially three different religions around that time because they, there's Shintoism, which is the base uh, for Shintoism, Buddhism, Iko iki and then Christianity. And so that's pretty interesting how all those influence the different Lords uh, called daimyos. Um, But no, there's, there's a lot of cool stuff and I just love the history. I love their architecture. Um, I love the, 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 the idea of the samurai, these very honorable warriors. Um, Like the last samurai is, it, it's not entirely accurate, but it's a really cool movie for displaying that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And I don't know. Uh, oh, here is it. Okay. So, Spartans and samurais, they're going to war. Yep. Who's winning?
1: Uh, it depends. So, the samurai is a better individual warrior, a Spartan is going to be a better team warrior. Because the thing about the Spartans was, and you probably remember this from 300, was their phalanx. The idea that you interlock shields between ranks and that you poke out your long pikes in between the shields. And so it's a very tight formation, very hard to break, except from the sides or the rear. And so the samurai are going to struggle with the phalanx from the front if they're they're fighting group on group. If the Spartans alone, the samurai probably wins because I think the katana is just a better weapon than the short swords that a, um, a Spartan is going to use in close combat. I also think that the, um, the Japanese armor is very good. It's good at deflecting blows from smaller slashing weapons. Yep. Also, the samurai uh, tend to be master of many weapons. So, like, the um, the katana, the naginata, the bow, lots of samurai were bowmen as well. So, if you can take out the Spartan from a distance.
0: So, my other wonder mm-hmm. was if a ninja's involved. <laughs>
1: mm mm-hmm. uh, A ninja? Ah. So, ninja are going to have a lot of the same skills as samurai. They also trained with the katana. And that they would have uh, also shorter blades and a variety of things. Um, who's the ninja fighting? a spartan ninja fighting the spartan um the ninja is not going to approach it head-on so it's going to be similar to the samurai i think if the ninja is allowed to um utilize their craft it's going to depend on environment as well because ninjas are always uh, are about using the environment to their advantage and also stealth subterfuge things like that uh the ninja isn't going to want to fight the spartan head-on but they could and I feel like they would have as much chance as the samurai, given their martial arts and katana, if the, if the Spartan did not have uh, the group, the phalanx. hmm Cool. Also, the ninja might have a better chance than the samurai if we start throwing tools in, like caltrops, if they were able to disrupt the phalanx with caltrops, smoke grenades, something along those lines, or, like, itching powder.
0: Which I also feel like this is just super unfair, because it's, like, thousands of years apart.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> The the spartan has less of an advantage because um, technology advanced, even though you're looking. So you're looking at bronze age versus medieval slash renaissance, which said... I'm, I'm using renaissance broadly like it was the European renaissance at the same time as uh, the samurai were coming into their own in the warring states.
0: Oh, I tell everyone, like, if history, mm-hmm. my favorite century is the 16th century, because mm-hmm. every single place on Earth had its own thing going on.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's just fascinating. I'm actually submitting a panel about it to a couple conventions. So, oh,
1: cool. Yeah, that'd be really good.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this is coming out after it either gets passed or whatever, so uh, you won't be able to steal it and unless it's rejected, <laughs> then whatever. Anyway, so I literally, what was the panel name called? Uh, I was just texting it last night. The history of the 16th century is nothing but a TTRPG plot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's true, because everything's chaotic everywhere.
0: My God, that's what I learned all about uh, during the pandemic was, like, European history. Like, mm-hmm. during, like, the Renaissance and the War of the Roses and everything that. Mm-hmm. And now I'm, like, learning about the Magnificent Century, which is no better, everyone.
1: Mm-hmm. Magnificent Tur- Century was? Turkish. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm.
0: Like, harem sultana like okay yeah uh freaking anne boleyn of turkey over there
1: yes they they were just as cutthroat and depending on what religion you were or what royal family you belong to or which sultanate you could just be nemesis worst of nemeses worst enemies mm-hmm.
0: yeah and apparently it was like standard practice that like once a sultan rose he killed all his brothers
1: yes you you killed the bloodline and if you took over the kingdom from somebody else, you killed their entire family, everyone, women and children.
0: Right? Yes. And I was just like, what? And I was like, now I understand why all the harem ladies are like scheming so much to get their son in power. Yes. Because mm-hmm. otherwise he's gone or he flees the country. And even half the time you flee the country, it doesn't work.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. So
0: yeah, um, history.
1: Wow. It was people. a really interesting uh, succession system. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. aren't they all?
0: <laughs> oh my god it was so funny as soon as like we heard about the queen over there elizabeth hmm. i was like oh thank god we're american so like everyone <laughs> i knew i was like I, I now that i am aware of history i'm like ooh, i'm happy mm-hmm. i'm not around for a succession change like mm. mm-hmm. and like oh we lots of things could happen right now well and
1: the the king doesn't have that much power so i'm not Unless he's trying to reclaim it, that might be something.
0: Actually, he's trying to shrink it, and apparently his coronation is going to be scaled back, and I'm like, why? This is the first coronation most of the world's seen.
1: Let us have this. Oh, that's true, yeah. Let's (laughs) have the pomp and circumstance, because everybody's adopted the British royals as their own, except for people that probably aren't happy with the British royals. Um. (laughs) I I was thinking more along the lines of, like, India. but
0: Oh, them too. Uh Uh-huh. But anyways, speaking yes. of, we're so off topic. So back to anime. So what's your favorite anime? And where are you going to get Isekai to? Oh, didn't we do Isekai? We did it for video games.
1: Oh, okay. So I have to pick an anime. Okay, So my favorite anime is uh, Code Geass. Do you watch anime? I do, but I have okay. not seen Code Geass. Okay, so Code Geass is, um, it is modern day. It is a mecha anime. Oh, it I know it involves... what it's about. Yeah, everyone
0: I know watches it.
1: Oh, okay. So you know about it. Yeah. So just explain for the audience then. Mecha anime follows a character called Lelouch Lamperouge, who is the exiled son of the biggest empire on earth, the Empire of Britannia. And it, 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 the story follows an alternate plot line or an alternate history where Benjamin Franklin sold out the American Revolution to the British. And as a result, the British win the Revolutionary War. And then during the Napoleonic War, Napoleon successfully invades Britain. So the British royalty flee to the states and start the new empire of Britannia. And that's where we are. And then Britannia wants securidite, which is this uh, mineral that enables them to power their mechs and all these high-powered generators and airships and everything. And so they invade Japan because the biggest supply is under Mount Fuji. As we all know with anime, everything important happens in Japan. Yep. Yes. But anyway, it's fascinating. It's a lot of cutthroat politics. It is a lot of uh, backstabbing and scheming. Lelouch is a genius that is thinking uh, 12-step chess moves ahead of everybody else. And it's interesting to see his plots come to fruition. And he is an anti-hero. Or he's an anti-villain. You can look at him from either side of the spectrum. That he he does some pretty awful things for what he thinks is right for a for his sister and eventually he becomes so wrapped up in it that he forgets that it was all for his sister so it's a very interesting character study as well um where do i want to be isekai to uh not code Geass, because being a regular person that doesn't have a me- mech sucks yep um not Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, which is my second favorite, because if you are not an an, an Amestrian, you're going to get killed for a, some sort of blood ritual, and that's not a fun world. Have you seen FMA Brotherhood? I know lots of people that have. It's it should be near your top of your list. That's um, what
0: everyone tells me that I would personally love it.
1: Yes, it, it is brilliant. Great twists, excellently plot. It's plotted like a fantasy novel. Um. Working down my list. Um, not Monster, because that's basically our world with a um, homicidal kid that was saved by a doctor that grows up to be obsessed with him while committing serial murders. So that's not too fun. Um, not Gurren Lagann, because that's more crazy mech, and um, you're either on the side that has the mechs or you're not. And so that would be pretty awful. Um. Trying to find a good one. I don't want to pick Sword on online, which is like um, one of the early ones in the isekai genre. Have you heard of that? Oh, yes. <laughs> Have you watched it?
0: I watched the first 13. Okay, when so
1: was... when it was at its best. Yes. Okay. Um, so that's another one you don't want to get isekai to because you die in the game, you die in real life. Um. Not Overlord, because if you're not Bone Daddy, that's awful. Have you heard of Overlord?
0: I have heard of it, and I actually don't know a lot about that one.
1: Overlord is the one where it follows an isekai protagonist that ends up in his character from a game when the game server shuts down. He happened to be online at the time. And so he gets portaled into a fantasy world that exactly that is similar to the game, has a lot of the same game mechanics. And he's stuck in his character that was an elder lich. And so his elder lich persona starts overriding his human persona so he can still he still has his human thoughts he still has his inner voice that sounds like his original character but he starts he loses most of his empathy and he starts identifying more with his direct servants the monsters everybody and it is the story of the villain that is pursuing world domination from the villain's perspective and you also get side views of the the humans the elves or the dwarves or anybody that he comes into contact with, but so it's fascinating from that perspective so not that world um there are a ton of great isekai worlds and i think that they all can't think of a single one that you would want to be stuck in up you're muted i could think of a bunch okay pitch me one pokemon oh, that, oh there you go okay let's choose pokemon
0: i would say digimon just because i'm willing to risk it uh-huh. uh fairy tale Pokemon's really
1: cool uh fairy tale yeah that's a good one because Tail's not um, awful
0: who, i was like whoever dies like two characters
1: I, I i actually i'd pick fairy tale those guilds so cool yeah yeah that's mine. no.
0: Up until, like,
1: I saw, I watched... And, and also, Red there's Ferry's so game. many different types of magic. You're not, like, shoehorned into something.
0: True! And you can mm-hmm. basically pick mm-hmm. in that series. No, but the whole thing, uh, the only person that died was Urza's friend, was my joke the whole series. The During the Tower of Heaven. <laughs> he comes back. Did he come back? I don't know if yeah. he came back. The rest of them come back, though. Jalal? No. Like, oh,
1: the other friend. Yes,
0: yes. <laughs> the one person that yes. dies in fairy tale. Oh. Simon. Uh, Simon.
1: Simon. Yeah. The one with the uh the metal jaw, right?
0: Something. I don't know if yeah. he's the one with the jaw, but the jaw guy was there too. Like, yeah, you know exactly who I mean. He's like the only guy that dies in Fairy Tale until like way later. Yeah, I'm trying to think of who else dies in Fairy Tale.
1: He also has his new series, um, Eden's Promise or Eden's Zero? Is it still going? I it, got yes. it got canceled, the manga? I thought it did. I didn't think it lasted long. You would know better than me. I can't imagine anything that he does getting canceled. The manga's still running, the anime's still running.
0: Okay. And Fairy yep. Tale 100 Years Quest is still going, or 1,000 year, whatever it was.
1: Yes. So that's fun. Um, then there's One Piece. One Piece is also pretty cool, that world. Mm-hmm. Except for if you have a devil through power, you can't swim. It's kind of limiting.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So, okay. You lived in Germany.
1: Yes. Okay. So when did you live there? Uh, 2008. 2000 to 2003.
0: Okay, and what brought you there?
1: Um, I'm an army brat. My father was was in the army. Was it was in the army? He retired um, 2007, but um, he went over there to uh, do his battalion command. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, Uh, what's something surprising about Germany that you think other people should know?
1: Surprising about Germany? Um, Most people know about the Audubon which is that um, if you... Well, it's very hard to get a driver's license in Germany. They're a lot more strict and stringent than they are here. And if you mess up with involving alcohol, your license is just gone. It doesn't matter how severe it was. Your license is gone. They don't mess around. You also have to pay more money to get your license. So everybody treats uh, driving... They're, 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 they tend to be better drivers than in America, and they treat it as sacred. They, they don't mess around with it. But because of that, um, they have what's called the Autobahn, which is essentially their highway system. And you can go as fast as you want on the Autobahn. There is no speed limit. I don't know if you knew that or other people knew that.
0: I actually learned that this morning.
1: Oh, you learned that this morning? Okay. Or yesterday.
0: I literally just learned that. One of my coworkers like lived in Germany for like mm-hmm. 10 years. And when she was growing up and she was like, I actually have a German driver's license. And she was so proud. I was like, why is that so special? And so she was oh, explaining yeah. it. Yeah.
1: A lot of people <laughs> use public transportation. Um, all throughout Europe. Um, the trains are always on time in Germany. They're very punctual. Um, also, Germans are friendlier than, you, than most people stereotypically give them credit for. Um, but most of them can speak English. They can speak English very well. I was in a German immersion program while I was over there with the Department of Defense schools, which are the English schools. We would spend half a day in English and half a day speaking German. And we would also go off base in order to do stuff with German classes. Um... Very friendly people, always happy to to talk, and they'll speak English if you don't know German. Um, great bike trails; the the country is like covered in bike trails. That they they're obsessed with biking. Um, let's see what else would people not know. Um, river system: the Rhine River. You can take cruises down the Rhine River and see most of the country from north to south. Wow! Um, lots of great castles that you can visit. Um, very picturesque. I think of what else There's Playmobil land in Germany Uh-huh So if you guys remember Playmobil Do you? No <laughs> It was a competitor to Lego And what was the other competitor?
0: Oh, I do remember Playmobil It had like yes. the weird dog rabbit logo
1: Yes, uh-huh And so I think there's Playmobil land um, There's also a Lego land over there uh, I'm trying to think of what else
0: Were you fluent in German before you went over?
1: No. And I wasn't... I I got very good at it, and then I took German when I got back, and now I've lost most of it again.
2: Hmm.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. But no, those are all interesting facts. Collectively, somebody learned something new.
0: I mean, I learned a bunch new. Uh...
1: Uh, Drinking age is 16, or maybe it's 14. It's low.
0: Way younger than here.
1: Yes. Uh, and it's actually very healthy because they teach people at 16. They teach people to drink socially rather than to excess like we do in America. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh Oh, sorry. This is where the click is. Alright, okay. So, and last up is that you own the world's biggest Sheltie. I
1: do, yes. What is a Sheltie? So a Sheltie is a Shetland sheepdog. Have you heard the term before? Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is Valen in the, about the author picture from the book. And he is a blue Merle Sheltie. He was 75 pounds before he had an accident. He's now down to about 61. He tore both of his rear ACLs and had to get weight off to be able to support himself on his uh, damaged legs. But he was lean, not a lot of fat, um, lots of fur and shedding, but he's as big as a golden retriever pretty much. And Shelties are supposed to be around 25 to 30 pounds. And so he is one of six Shelties that my family has, and all of them are oversized for Shelties. Don't know what it is.
0: I was about to say, how did you acquire the world's biggest?
1: (laughs) So he was one that we got from a different litter. We've also, we bred his sister who we got from the same litter with another male. And we got uh, nine puppies from that litter. And so let me get my phone. I have to show you because we have a very rare puppy as well that we kept. we, we sold seven out of the nine. Hmm. So we have a very rare puppy called a color-headed white, and it is so rare that you are not allowed to show it in competition. Now because wow. most pe- you couldn't fe- most people couldn't feasibly get one. Okay. And you have to breed um, two color-headed white parents together to get a a one-in-four chance of getting a color-headed white. We got one from two sables. Sables are your traditional Sheltie colorings. It's the white mane with the brown or or tawny fur. And then a blue merle, Valen, uh, this is his coloring, the, the world's biggest Sheltie.
0: Wow, okay.
1: Yes, so that's his coloring. He's not the rare one. Uh, this is him, again, guarding uh, new books that were delivered.
0: Oh, didn't you post that one?
1: Yes, I did. Um, so let me find a good one of Merle. I normally have a lot of these. Sorry for the delay. This is just interesting. Okay, so this is Merle. We called him Merle because we thought he was a blue Merle like Valen. He is what's known as a color-headed white. So extremely rare Shelties. Um, Their head is either a blue Merle coloring or a sable coloring. He's a sable coloring. And then they'll typically have like one or two other spots on their body, like you see one near his tail in the background that will also be that same color. And so color-headed white comes from the fact that their head is colored and the rest of their body is white. Yeah, no, uh-huh.
0: very pop and very pretty, and yeah, that's all I got for the main question portion. When... Awesome!
1: Ooh, it only took us almost three hours. Is that a long show for you?
0: No. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, maybe one of the longer ones, longest in a while, but like my longest. Yeah, one we is went four on four hours. So tangent. Whatever. Yeah. It was worth it, like you heard. But here, anyway, ready for rapid fire? Because yes. rapid fire makes everyone the same, even though we all talk about very different things. All right, so here we go. Question number one: What are your chosen coping skills?
1: Coping skills? Um, I've never really thought about this. Um, video games? Does that count for stressing, yeah. de-stressing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, go go play something else. Go take my mind off it.
0: Team Edward or Jacob?
1: Oh, this is Twilight, isn't it? i haven't ever watched the movies full um i choose the vampire edward because i like vampires better than werewolves
0: which direction should you cut your sandwich uh
1: vertically not from corner to corner vertically or horizontally it'd be the same but vertically makes more sense i think because then you have to turn your hand sideways it's easier to cut
0: what direction should you fold your napkins
1: do people fold napkins? <laughs> uh, I'm a little bit disorganized outside of like the structured engineering, the structured book stuff. Um, I don't normally fold napkins. I just fold the the plies back together. when I pull them off the rack,
0: what gift would you want to get from a
1: fairy? From a fairy. Ooh. What can a fairy give? Uh, Instant answer is that pops straight into mine is immortality, but I may come to regret that.
0: Left or right twix.
1: <laughs> oh, right twix, I'm right-handed. No, That's I'm left-footed. T- oh, really? Uh, so I my, when at martial arts, Taekwondo, my dominant leg is my left. I love kicking with my left. Hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Odd enough, I am right-footed, but I turn better to the left. And I don't mm-hmm. know why. Yeah. And that's apparently rare. So, mm-hmm. uh, what's a trend that went too far? <sighs> trend that went too far.
1: You see, this requires you to be up on trends to be trendy. Uh... I would say isekai, but I love isekai anime. So they, they, they put out like 10 a season these days, and most people think they've gone too far, but um, something that's gone too far. I'm going to choose something very petty. Um, people that. Uh, they put the toilet paper on the roll and they don't pull down, they pull up. That's gone too far.
0: (laughs) What is one thing you would eliminate from life?
1: Same answer. (laughs) What thing, one thing would I eliminate from life? Probably reliance on money, because if you don't, if you're not relying on money, you could, I could just write all day and then people could read my books all day.
0: True, we would have more time to read. Yes. Um, who would play you in a documentary and or movie about your life?
1: Who would play me? Um, people have said I look like Justin Bieber, which I'm older than Justin Bieber, so he looks like me um let's see who would play me oh benedict cumberbatch yep there we go perfect
0: uh oof. i want to ask why but that's technically not part of it
1: um because i sort of identify with like dr strange characters and sherlock holmes and things like that and i think he would do a good job with both the quirky and the serious
0: I don't think Doctor Strange is a villain, thank you.
1: But he's well—he's a villain on that other world. He's not a villain overall. Are you thinking about Scarlet Witch?
0: No, I'm saying Uh, that you are always like Mister. Oh, I like the villains.
1: Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sean Sean Bean, so he can die. No,
0: (laughs) (laughs) he only dies in fantasy. We learned. I saw a meme about that. All the sci-fi things he's been in, he usually doesn't die.
1: He Well, he's going to die eventually in Snowpiercer. Oh, are they done? Did they stop airing that? I have no clue. Okay. He's the villain in that. Oh, mm. okay.
0: Well, that makes sense. Or mm-hmm. logically. Anyways, this is about you. Okay, so that documentary or movie about your life that Benedict Cumberbatch is in front of <laughs> you, what genre is it?
1: Oh, it's a fantasy. We're, we're we're gonna portal this up. I get drawn into some. I get drawn to one of my worlds, and I have to deal with all my characters as they come after me because of all the trauma I caused them. And That's so I have funny. to make new allies among the people I didn't traumatize, among like the ordinary people or the people that got to live good lives.
0: That would. See, be we, we've
1: already got a really good
0: plan here. Yeah, actually, it could be anyone. Honestly, that could be the video game. Yep. Make your NPC everyone, or make your main (laughs) character everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Oh, here's a good one. If you stick to the status quo, which clique
1: would you be in? Stick to the status quo. I was in every clique. I was actually even president of the student body in high school. So, like, I did literally everything. So, if I had to identify with one, I'd be a nerd. But everything to a certain degree.
0: Cool. Next question what clique should you have been in in high school?
1: I, I was in all of them. <laughs> uh, the okay, the people that I hung out with that were my direct friends were nerds and we did land parties and stuff like that. So I was in the nerd group from that perspective. but I also uh, did football parties and stuff and I did uh, the drama uh, the plays and everything.
0: I don't know how but you yeah. have time to do yeah. all this, Mr. Marching Band, drama, like football.
1: So football, before I got to, um, while well, I was still in JV, I was able to march and play football. And then I just had to stop doing marching band when I got to varsity football. Um, there was actually a friend of mine, uh, Kendall, he was a running back. And he was he did both. That The band director let him play football, and then at halftime he'd run and get his trumpet. And then run out in his pads.
0: <laughs> I've seen so many schools do that. And uh, I honestly wish more uh, would. Because yes. I have no issue with the cross culture. Unless, a kid, unless someone's injured. Like, God, if he's, like, yep. you know, feeling shaky, don't march on the field. We'll hit you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. Last question is, if your life was a jukebox musical, you know what that is?
1: Uh, music played from a jukebox?
0: So a jukebox musical is a musical defined as a one that uses music that isn't made for the play. So like think Mamma uh, Mia, How It's All ABBA. Ah, uh, okay. And things yep. like that. So if your life is a jukebox musical, what would be the opening song?
1: My life, opening song. Let's go for Broke, The Imperial March.
0: Huh. So you heard it here first, uh, everyone. Benedict Cumberbatch is going to star in an isekai of Dr. Christopher Russell's life <laughs> with Ber- Imperial March beginning it. One day I'm actually going to make a playlist uh, for this podcast and mm-hmm. like have everyone's songs because yes. everyone has such different songs and I love mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And most of them are panic picks, but that was not a panic pick. So I time.
1: so if I had to pick one with lyrics, it might be uh, Toto rains down Africa. Hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. He could sing that. Yeah. Huh. You know, you're the first person to give like, uh, it's just called Africa, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Look at that. And there you go, everyone. That is the end of the rapid fire. Woo. Woo. Good job, guys. Yeah, so Dr. Christopher Russell over here. Where can people find you if they're trying to hunt you down because you're so cool?
1: Lots of places. So uh, let me quickly tell you about this. So this is Divinity's Twilight Rebirth, first book in my epic fantasy, epic steampunk series. I um, like to call it a cross between Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. Lots of epic magic, lots of great characters, lots of uh, dealing with traumatic past, And there's also a little bit of mental illness and depression. And we explore themes like that. But you're also going to get a lot of dragons and fantastical creatures and airships, like from Final Fantasy. Everybody loves the airships. Um, second book in that series is Divinity's Twilight Remnant. Just came out, doing very well. Number one in military fantasy. Um, best book I've ever written. Uh, if you read both of them, get through book one, get to this. This is, I think you're going to like this, but you're going to like the series. Uh, you can find me on Christopher Russell Author.com. That's my website and also the best place to get signed copies or f- sign up for our newsletter and get direct news. Uh, my socials on Facebook, you can find me at Divinity's Twilight Fantasy Novels. On Instagram, you can find me at Christopher underscore Russell underscore author. And on Twitter, I am at Chris underscore DT underscore author. And so all those place get places get updated regularly, and you'll be able to find my books from there. Um, book one uh divinity's twilight rebirth is still going to be in retailers like barnes and noble brick and mortar stores also in ebook um divinity's twilight remnant which is the one that i self-published is exclusive to amazon right now you're going to be able to do that on kindle unlimited as well if you're a kindle unlimited reader um, you're also going to be able to get books from some bookstores that carry it um, a fair number that carried book one do carry it but books will always be cheaper if you go through me and they will be signed. So if you want to try out the series and you like physical books, go to my website.
0: Wow. Okay. So yes. now I know I'm going to, I might wait for the collector edition though.
1: Uh, Hardcover's done. So that, that is now up on my website. Oh, so, so if you like this. everything. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Ooh. Okay. There we go, everyone. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> Probably gone by the time you guys hear this in like, what, how many months, <laughs>
1: but there'll be some new special edition for you guys to get.
0: Maybe that other book, the co-written one.
1: Yes. <laughs> the, uh, the, I, my goal is to have at least two more books done by the, and published by the time you hear this.
0: Woo-woo. And yes. so go check that out and find out what they are, because I don't know what they both are. I uh, think.
1: Book three in Divinity's Twilight. And then the other one's going to be one of the co-written books, probably Age of Bone. Mm-hmm.
0: There you go. All right. So, again, thank you so much for coming on. We just hit three hours. Woo-woo. woo Woo-woo. Breaking Barriers.
1: We no, this has been a lot of fun day. Thank you.
0: No problem. And for all you satellites out there, that's what I call the fandom. Uh, <laughs> catch us next to Orbit. And yeah, I don't know. I don't got anything Oh, and cool play Legend
1: of Dragoon. That was the big takeaway from this. Go yes.
0: Do it now. Do it now. Yes. Find out. Find it nefarious ways. I don't care what way you find. Mm-hmm. Play it. Go support a streamer on Twitch or just youtube it i guess i don't know but different you have to actually play that one because the combat's so good yes all right so uh bye world (laughs) yep good night